That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the bald-faced truth. All right, welcome in. Bald-faced truth on a signing day Wednesday. I guess I should say uh, Merry Christmas to those of you that celebrate signing day as being uh, Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy holidays. Did you know today was uh, was Christmas, Stephen Vaughn? I did not. I did not know that uh, today was Christmas. It's like Christmas 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 Eve. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, a college football fan's Christmas. At least it used to be that way. I know it's changed since the advent <laughs> pun of the transfer portal, but it still is a bit of an exciting day, signing day. You know, Oregon making waves. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Most wonderful time of the year. I think I remember when Justin Herbert announced he was coming back for his senior season at Oregon. I think it was on the 26th of December. It was like an extra Christmas present bonus. Which, by the way, December 26th is one of the worst days to be out and about shopping in stores. I will tell you that firsthand. If you can avoid going to stores to return any unwanted Christmas gifts, just wait until the 27th. Don't go out on the 26th. It is just sheer chaos out there. It's worse than Black Friday. It's sheer chaos out there. Don't go out shopping on the 26th. But signing day today, the Ducks doing big things, moving up in uh, in the rankings. We'll talk about that. We'll We'll have Spencer McLaughlin join us. In the 4 o'clock hour, we'll have some audio from Trent Bray and Dan Lanning today. By the way, Dan Lanning doing his first hits with the Big Ten Network today as well as part of signing day. And that's kind of a a B takeaway of this day is the production of of the Big Ten Network actually caring and covering professionally uh, an event like signing day is is something that Pac-12 fans aren't quite as accustomed to. Trailblazers won last night, Stephen. You said on the show you were driving the show yesterday, and you said plus seven, book it, feeling good about it. You kind of floated in there right toward uh, the tail end, and right lo and end. behold, money line, baby. How about it? That's why you got to tune in to the end of the show. You know, we're going to throw in nuggets all the way to the end of the three hours. But, yeah, I liked the Blazers last night. They got the dub. I didn't expect a win. I'll tell you that. I did not expect a money line win, but uh, the plus seven I was feeling real good about. Well, it absolutely came through. I know Anferni hit one uh, in the clutch. Speaking of uh, shots in the clutch, uh, John Morant. This is another topic we covered yesterday. John Morant returns from his 25-game suspension and uh, looks pretty good throughout the way and then hits the buzzer beater. 
Uh, You know, people are talking about how he handled himself afterwards and and saying things like, I kept receipts. Uh, What's your quick thought on that with Jaw hitting the winner and then, you know, behaving as he did on his way out? I mean, it's it's a little weird to, uh, you know, talk about, you know, he kept receipts when it was pretty obvious that, like, you know, you deserve to be suspended. Like, there was really no other argument than, like, Hey, you can't be just flashing guns on Instagram. Like I thought it was a little a little harsh. Twenty five games was harsh to suspend John Morant. But but at the same time, like I thought he deserved to be suspended. So I don't know. I don't know who really was talking a bunch of trash about it. But I will say, you know, you watch him play and the Grizzlies are down a bunch. They made a nice comeback. He hits the game winning shot. And the shot he hit is a shot that basically only he can take in the NBA. Like the way he drives, the way he jumps and hangs in the air. That's why I said yesterday, Judah, he is one of the most, if not the most exciting player in all of basketball. And so just to have him back playing, I think if you're an NBA fan, it's fun to watch him do that. Um, and I think Memphis is about to go on a little run here and try to make the playoffs. I mean, yeah. it's still early on in the season, but it's fun to have Jaw back because he's going to have some highlight plays. You got some uh, big NFL action this week as well. You got the Saints and the Rams on Thursday Night Football. Uh, that will carry on 750 The Game and 750thegame.com. You got a doubleheader on Saturday. You'll have uh, Sunday Night Football Christmas Eve. Uh, Patriots Broncos, you'll you'll be glued to your TV sets for that one. I look, uh, I've been pretty poor with totals lately, but how does that not go under? Pat's Broncos. You're not a Bailey Zappy believer, huh? Yeah, uh, but he's burned me. He burned me in Pittsburgh, so I guess uh, I won't say nothing bad about him. And then Monday, Christmas Day, you've got three NFL games, and uh, they're all pretty decent games. You know, the Raiders playing the way that they're playing. They got the Chiefs in Arrowhead. Um, I know later on that day you'll have Eagles and Giants. That might not be as good of a game, but we can see if the Eagles you know, find their footing again after slipping in Seattle uh, for a third game in a row. And then uh, Christmas night is the best game of the weekend. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens going to San Francisco to take on the 49ers. That's going to be a very a special matchup and a good game. So we'll unpack that as well. But college football is dominating the headlines today uh, with signing day and Oregon once again, under Dan Lanning, is making national news and waves. Now, I'll be honest about signing day. Um, it's one of those things that I used to get really into it, and I knew the majority of the uh, the prospects and the commits and the signings and the decommits and the dramatic moments and who was going to fill out the depth chart. And then there comes a point as a college football fan, while that does that is exciting, and and look, I'm not a diehard duck or a diehard beef. I pay attention to both programs. I root for both programs. I didn't, and that, neither is my alma mater, but I've grown up rooting for both programs my whole life, and so I continue to do so behind the mic. Uh, obviously, Oregon's dominated the recruiting trail at a pace that Oregon State has, you know, obviously not been able to 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 keep up with. Um, but at what point does it manifest to? Um, you know, just domination on the field. And that's kind of what I struggled with. Oregon, for as great the recruiting results have been, uh, you know, they they still haven't gotten back to the playoffs since 14. Meanwhile, UW is going for a second time, and they might get to the national championship game. Um, You know, if we said it on the show yesterday, if you're a Duck fan, there's no way that you are rooting for Washington to beat Texas. Like, you need them to lose to Texas and have Sark you know, blow them out and, and be the one left standing going to the national title game. You don't want your rival um, going as far as you did now that they're in the playoff for a time more than, than you've been, UW going for a second time. 
Um, meanwhile, you know, for Oregon, it's a second straight year of a really positive results in the recruiting space. But even this past year, you like you lost to Washington twice. Uh, you beat Oregon State soundly, unlike the way you did in 2022. So it's still early in Dan Lanning's tenure. But in the back of my mind, you know, at the end of the recruiting rankings and composite scores, they they're not insignificant. But we can't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, the only result that really matters is wins and losses. And there is correlation between strong recruiting and wins and losses as it relates to your floor as a program. But I don't think that there's as strong a correlation as it relates to busting through your ceiling as a program. And that, to me, is still the challenge that's in front of Dan Lanning and his coaching staff and uh, Marshall Malkow and everybody that's building out that very, very impressive roster at Oregon. And it is, it is again, impressive today. A couple more five-star guys. Five-star guy from the defensive line from Matter Day that's coming. Five-star edge rusher Elijah Rushing, who initially was committed to, to Jed Fish in Arizona, decommits, ends up flipping to Oregon. How about two different four-star wide receivers that flip today from uh, USC, one of them did, and he's coming to Oregon, a guy named Ryan Pelham from Long Beach, California. I've been reading up on this guy a little bit, and he's, you know, uh, uh, he's an athlete. He's short, diminutive guy. Like, he's buck 70, maybe. But, hey, you know, there's jitterbugs out there that have got that have got a role in college football for sure. Uh, and, and he flipped from USC to, to Oregon today, and that's a big one. There was another wide receiver, another four-star, that flipped from uh, Ohio State to Oregon. And he's from St. Louis. And that's the other thing that I'm finding interesting. Few more recruits coming out of the state of Missouri. That's where Dan Lanning is from. Grew up a Kansas City Chiefs fan, as he's recounted numerous times on the show. But he's getting into the Midwest a little bit more and getting some good talent. This four-star receiver out of St. Louis that's coming to Oregon, flipped him from Ohio State, which is tough to do. I mean, think about how many receivers go to Ohio State and thrive. Uh, that's, you know, Mark one for Dan Lanning, getting one from from Brian Hartline, who's arguably the greatest wide receiver recruiter and developer in the nation. Uh, you know, his track record has spoken for itself over the years. So to do that today, that I mean, that's massive. Oregon, I think, came into the day uh, certainly in the top 10 in all the national recruiting rankings, but they were number eight in the 247 sports composite. I believe they vaulted all the way up to number four. No one has made a bigger leap at the top of the recruiting rankings today, this day, this this opening of the early signing period, early signing day. No one's had a bigger leap than the Oregon Ducks. So again, bravo to Dan Lanning. Uh, he'll have his press conference coming up a little bit later this hour. We'll be rolling on it and playing some of that sound throughout the show today. And Spencer McLaughlin will be joining us in our second hour to break it down um, and give us an update on how it looks from Oregon's roster perspective. Uh, for the Beavers, you know, obviously they're they're hurting a little bit in the wake of Jonathan Smith's departure to Michigan State. And that's going to be inevitable to a certain degree. I mean, you're going to lose some of your commits. You're going to lose guys in the transfer portal. I just saw, obviously, uh, tight end Jack Avelling not that long ago. He committed to Michigan State. Obviously, we know Aiden Childs is already going to Michigan State. 
Uh, just saw yesterday the other tight end, uh, Overman. He is transferring to Pitt. And uh, there was that, that cornerback that decided to transfer and leave Oregon State. And he uh, is now with the Tennessee Volunteers. Um, uh, Ger- Gerard McCoy, I believe his name is. So McCoy is going to Rocky Top. So you're going to lose some of these guys. You lost some commits. I think you lost like nine commitments uh, in the last few weeks since Jonathan Smith announced his departure. That's a lot. But there are a couple of guys on that on the Beavers signing class that got me excited. There's a running back out of the state of Texas that's coming to Oregon State. And he's only a, a two-star, allegedly, but you know how these star rankings go. But you watch some of his tape, and this guy, is he's a smooth, smooth player. And look, anytime you give me overlooked running back from the state of Texas coming to Oregon State, I, I'll get a little excited. Like, I, I love these uh, these Texas athletes that come to either the Ducks or the Beavers. You know, if you're a Duck fan, you're like, yeah, that's that's how we got LaMichael. And uh, obviously, if you're a Beaver fan, that's how we got the Rogers brothers. And so... Um, you know, I, I just love that idea and love that pipeline of good running back out of the state of Texas that might be overlooked uh, coming to Oregon State. And then there's this other athlete uh, whose whose name I know is first name, I think, is Exodus. I'm trying to remember what his last name is, Stephen. If, if you find uh, Exodus's last name and let me know, I'd appreciate it. Oh, Ayers. Exodus Ayers is his name. So this guy. He's a three-star receiver defensive back. And forget about the stars for a moment. But this guy uh, is a good athlete, and he's originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, I like that because I've got my mom's side of the family is from Santa Fe. So I've been down to Albuquerque a lot, and that's where my my lovely Grammy is now. It was her birthday yesterday. Love you, Grammy. Much love. Uh, So this guy's from the Albuquerque area, and then he goes out to prep school in New Jersey for a couple years, dominates out there, and he committed to Oregon State all the way back in, like, June, I want to say. And then all the the Big Ten news happened, and everything collapsed around the Pac-12. And um, he was in this piece that uh, Grace Rayner, who writes at The Athletic, she wrote this piece and quoted this Exodus Ayers guy, and uh, she caught up with him, and, and Exodus was like, yeah, it's crazy out there. Like, I don't think I'll decommit from Oregon State, but you never know. If they, he, Ayers is quoted as saying, if they don't make it with the Big 12, if they don't link up with the Big 12, I may have to reopen my commitment. Um, and there was another offensive line commit to Oregon State that said the same thing. And the O-line commit ended up decommitting from Oregon State. And today he signed with the Kansas Jayhawks and Lance Leipold. But this Exodus Ayers guy... He stayed true with it. He said as long as like Coach Smith and all those guys are still at Oregon State, I'll be fine. Well, as we know, Coach Smith left too. But Exodus Ayers still stayed committed to Oregon State. Now, that's just something that I want to highlight because that's a win for the Beavs as far as I'm concerned. You've got yourself a really good athlete who was recruited as a receiver and a defensive back. He will play defensive back from what I understand at Oregon State. He'll be a DB. When he committed to you, he was citing examples like uh, Rajon Wright and and Nashon Wright and some of these defensive backs that Oregon State's put into the National Football League. And Alex Austin being another one, and he said, "I want to, I want to be like that." He commits to you via Albuquerque in New Jersey is where he's playing his prep ball. And then he stays committed to you after the conference collapses around you, and he stays committed to you after Jonathan Smith leaves and Trent Bray is named as official head coach 
and he signs with you today. Good three-star athlete. I just want to take one time because I know if you're a Beaver fan out there, you're saying, man, <laughs> life's a little bit rough right now. Who knows what our quarterback situation is going to be long-term, and we could talk about that a little later in the show as well. But I saw that Exodus Ayers example, and I said, man, that's awesome. A guy that kept his commitment with Oregon State through all the turmoil and the topsy-turviness of, of everything, and you know he's not even from here. He's from Albuquerque and then New Jersey, and he comes to Oregon State, and he's staying. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll cite... I'm sure Trent Bray's, you know, promotion to full-fledged head coach had a lot to do with that. But on a day that the Oregon Ducks are dominating the regional headlines and the national headlines in recruiting, small victory, I think, for Oregon State today with, with that example. And there's plenty of examples for the Ducks, for Duck Nation to get excited about today as well, Stephen. Well, that's the type of player that Oregon State wants to get. And, uh, you know, we'll listen to Trent Bray a little bit later, but he even said the same thing, like, yeah, the transfer portal is important, but we are always going to be a program where we develop from within, and we're going to get better from within. You come to a place like Oregon State and Corvallis, and you're going to come out a better player. So, you know, Oregon State has a lot to uh, lot to fill. You talked about the transfer portal, uh, all those guys. You know, Jack Valine, uh, Easton Masquerades, Arnold, he goes to USC. Uh, Akili Arnold, he goes to USC. Uh, you know, a lot of guys on defense they lost, but. You know, if you're Oregon State, again, we've been saying this for a long time. Just start treading water and and stay above float and stay what you can do. But you know, you got to take all the dubs when you can because there hasn't been a lot of W's. Yeah. The Oregon State Beavers on or off the field lately, uh, but this is one of them where you know you can get a three star prospect that wanted to go there before the coach. You know, when John the Smith was there, now he's gone. You got Trent Bray, keep him there. It's a good thing. It's a, it's one of those building block things that Trent Bray can say. You know what? We did something good today. And this is what we want to do. This is the type of culture that I want to build here at Oregon State. It's got to be different. It's got to be different than it was with Jonathan Smith. It's got to be his own way. Um, and it's going to be a place where they build from within. So, you know, good good wins right there uh, for the Beavs. They also uh, got a three-star quarterback from, from Wilsonville. That's where I'm living these days, too. So I like that Wilsonville to Oregon State pipeline. Uh, I think uh, Zach Reichel is probably our, our best example of that on the basketball court. I'm a McMinnville guy originally, but come on. I mean, you know, they got to support the local uh, high school. Uh, Central Catholic linebacker is on his way to Oregon State as well. And Dexter Foster, that's really cool. As for the Ducks, boy, I mean, goodness knows. Just look anywhere and you'll find reasons to pump your fist. Uh, Five-star defensive lineman Aiden Breland from Modern Day. He committed to Oregon all the way back in October. So uh, his addition today wasn't a surprise, but it's still a, a big-time a big-time player at 6'5 and 290. Uh, Dakota Fields, a four-star defensive back from Southern California. He was originally a USC commit, uh, but he is joining Oregon after Oregon uh, announced they were going to the Big Ten. So there's an example where the Big Ten move helps the Ducks, you know, helps pull in one of those big-time defensive backs. Uh, you had Jaquan Shaq McCroy. All right, this dude is from Alabama. He is 6'8". 375, and he moves great. Uh, if you follow John Cazzano on Twitter, you'll see a highlight video of him uh, taking one of those, you know, lineman eligible plays in the red zone and catching it outside the numbers and then just bulldozing his way into the end zone for a touchdown. He goes by Shaq, Shaq McCroy, 6'8", 375. Uh, he picked o- Oregon today over Coach Prime in Colorado. He you know, he went viral a little bit because he, you know, couldn't help himself. He put on the Buffalo hat and then threw it away and then put on the Oregon hat when he was making his commitment this afternoon. So that was pretty funny to see. 
But the two receivers are really, you know, drawing buzz. Uh, the Ryan Pelham edition, the four-star receiver, he flips from USC to Oregon today. He has an interesting story that I'll dig into a little bit later in the show. And Jeremiah McClellan was the Ohio State flip to the Oregon Ducks. He's the one from St. Louis. And we're seeing a little bit more and more of Dan Lanning uh, going into the state of Missouri, which is where he was born and bred and pulling out some big-time talent, Steve. And I think that's kind of cool because that's unique to the head coach who's in charge. Yeah, we always talk about how unique it is that you know Dan Lanning doesn't have that alma mater that he's going to leave for. Well, you know what? He still has his home roots, and he still has connections back to where he grew up from. So it's cool to see, like you said, to see Oregon get those type of guys uh, from the you know from the Midwest and things like that because it's, it, this is a national brand, and they they're proving this once again that you know Oregon is a national brand. They're here to stay, and they they want to be considered the best and one of the best up there with Alabama and Michigan and Ohio State and Georgia. Like they want to be up there with those guys. And they keep getting recruits, and they keep getting higher up in the recruiting uh, rankings. They're stealing guys from these schools now. Ohio State, you know, USC, obviously, they're getting those receivers from them. So, you know, you can't, you can't be, you can't not be happy if you're an Oregon Duck fan today. Like the way that they've gone about it, the way that they're doing it, uh, the way Landing's hitting the transfer portal and the recruits. It's, you know, it's a great combination of what you're doing and what they got going on is working down in Eugene. So you, you have to be happy if you're an Oregon Duck fan right now with the way that they recruited not only kept their own guys that they had commits from, but also stealing guys from other schools. It's just you know a great day for the Ducks. In, in the back of my head, and I know it's in the back of your head too, is always, well, it's cool that these guys are signing. Who knows how long they're going to be there? But that day will come, right? I mean, that in the day of the portal, all that stuff kind of take care, takes care of itself. It shakes itself out. Uh, but in the meantime, just for bragging rights, it was a good day for Oregon, without question. They are on the national scene. They are among the elites in the country at being able to sign the top high school talent across the country. And it's just a reminder of the power of the Oregon brand, uh, the influence of Phil Knight and Nike, and just the recruiting prowess of Dan Lanning and his coaching staff. I think there's a ton of synergy uh, in that Oregon building right now. And that's great because that means that guarantees you relevance and guarantees that you're going to be competitive uh, sustainably, which is awesome. It does not guarantee anything more than that. And to earn anything more than that, college football playoff trips, playoff victories in the expanded format, winning the Big Ten. These are the new goals. Beating Washington. How about beating Washington? It's a great point. These are the new goals, all right? How about beating Oregon State and Corvallis? You haven't done that the last two times. You get a chance to do that in September of next year. I think you will, but still, you've got stuff to prove. So I think it's a great day, you know, for for the signings and and everybody that's coming to Oregon. I think they're going to be great, impactful players. But you also got to prove it. You got to leave data points. You got to back it up, and you got to win some big games. And uh, we know that that's evaded Oregon a time or two even in the Dan Lanning era. If you've got any reaction to signing date, 503-417-7575. I think uh, a couple of wins for Oregon State that are important to highlight, but the big picture with them is this is a long process. Uh, With Oregon, the celebrations are pretty immediate and obvious, and that's great, and we'll play some sound from Dan Lanning on the Big Ten Network and his press conference that's coming up in a little bit as well. Have some sound from Trent Bray, too. But you can chime in at 503-417-7575. We also had breaking news this afternoon on the future of Oregon State and Washington State Athletics. 
um, that are non-football and non-baseball related. Pretty much any other D1 sport, uh, obviously the focus first goes to men's and women's basketball and a new conference that they'll be joining uh, as soon as July 1st next summer. We'll talk about that on the other side and more uh, signing day reaction right here. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Kidzano on the Bald Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Kinzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back, Bald Face Truth, Junior Newbie, Stephen Vaughn, and for John Canzano. Hope you're enjoying your week and the days leading up to Christmas on Monday and uh, the holiday season in general. We'll have some best of the Bald Face Truth shows in store for you uh, later this week and uh, after Christmas as well. Going to get some time off, so uh, be on the lookout for that. All, all sorts of the great moments and great interviews on this show over the low so many years, and there have been many many years of this show going back to i think 07 i want to say i want to say labor day weekend of 07 is when this thing got going uh we'll have to text john strong he always knows the answer he was basically part of it at the time uh recruiting and signing day today is uh is in the air big day for the ducks back in the top five nationally pretty much of any you know rankings that you see they were around number eight or so they're up to number four we'll get you some dan landing audio He'll sit down to do his uh, press conference shortly, and we'll uh, have some of that sound throughout the show today. Same with Trent Bray as well. But uh, you can react to any of that at 503-417-7575. But, Stephen, we also got news today of the non-football and baseball sports. Uh, CBS Sports reported this. This is Dennis Dodd and Matt Norlander. Uh, Both of them had the initial report this afternoon that uh, as soon as tomorrow a vote is expected to take place and be approved by the West Coast Conference, the WCC, to bring in Oregon State and Washington State in as members. It would grow the basketball side of the WCC from nine teams to 11 teams in men's and women's basketball. It would be for the next two seasons. So it would start in the 2024-25 to season, and continue in the 25 to 26 season, essentially going from July 1st, 2024, through June 30th, 2026. Now, this does not impact football in any way. Be mindful of that. Obviously, there's no football in the West Coast Conference, so that's why. We already know about the uh, Mountain West uh, scheduling partnership and agreement with the Beavs and the Cougs uh, for the next couple of seasons as well. But we were wondering what's going to happen with the rest of the sports. Um, there's still room for baseball to join the WCC as part of this agreement. They're going to leave uh, baseball to have the option to join. I think there were earlier reports that said that the Big West and Oregon State baseball were looking to join each other. And then I saw my guy Kendall Rogers, D1Baseball.com today, basically say that uh, Oregon State is exploring going independent in baseball as well. So everything is on the table for Oregon State baseball uh, going into, I guess that would be the 2025 season, spring of 25 and 26 for Mitch Canham and uh, Beaver baseball, the O-State Ballas, as they will always be affectionately known to me 
uh, in this area. There's always room for OSU baseball uh, here. Hell, there's room for Duck baseball, too, after what uh, Waz and company did last year as well. Uh, just getting uh, about an out away from Omaha. Ah, pain, painfully close, but things are trending up for uh, for both the Ducks and the Beavs, but still excited to see where the Beavers end up in baseball. But aside from that, basketball at Oregon State, basketball at Washington State, all the other D1 sports uh, that are non-football and non-baseball at those programs are going to join the West Coast Conference for the next two years. So it's another uh, positive step for the Beavs and Cougs, who also gained uh, voting control and financial control of the Pac-12 Conference because the Supreme Court in the state of Washington decided to lift the stay of the initial ruling from uh, Gary Leiby in Whitman County back in October, and that ruled favorably to the Beavs and the Cougs. So things are starting to come together for OSU and WSU. And, Stephen, we'll get to see Beaver basketball in the West Coast Conference. And with it, chance to win the automatic qualifier. As long as you beat Gonzaga, there's nothing to it but to do it. Yeah, easy enough, right? Just beat Gonzaga, beat St. Mary's, <laughs> get in. No, but I, I think it is the best-case scenario, I think, for Oregon State. And, uh, you know, we talked about the Mountain West. It seemed like a logical choice. But you look at basketball, and me as a college basketball guy, the West Coast Conference has been on the rise, you know, trending very upward for the last five-plus years around here. And it's a good conference, and they've had years lately where they can get three teams in the tournament. They got Gonzaga, BYU when they were in the West Coast Conference, and St. Mary's all in the NCAA tournament. So it's not even just a one-bid league right now that you're looking at Oregon State, you know, men's and women's teams, and then Washington State as well with the good women's basketball team as well. So I think it's one of those things where it's a win-win situation. Then you look at uh, you know the other teams in the West Coast Conference, Oregon State versus Portland games. You know, there's going to be an in-state rivalry game that we usually don't get, and now we're going to have another one like that. Washington State's going to be able to play Gonzaga in a rivalry game up there in the Washington. So I think it's a good landing spot for both of these squads, and I think it's a good idea not to put the baseball team there, right? You talked about the Big West. That's the baseball conference, right? If you're Oregon State, you got to get down to the Big West, and they got to want you there because Oregon State, one of the best programs in the Big West, has all those California schools that are just really good at baseball. It's just a perfect fit. So I think it's a win-win situation here. I'm a, you know, I'm a big West Coast Conference guy, so uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's the best spot for the Beavs and the Cougars. Like, I think they can be competitive, but also at the same time, like they're going to be playing really good teams, and there's a chance for them if they have a good season, which you know probably not going to be the next two seasons if you're Oregon State. But Washington State, if they you know they have a good season, they could get that large bid being the West Coast Conference. I think that's really all you can ask for. So you know, we're finally getting to the end here where we're seeing some things happen. And we know, you know, just a solid, you know, a solid standard and uh, solid ground of what Oregon State and Washington State will be competing going forward. Yeah, it's uh, it is pretty fascinating. And again, I, I did see uh, Kendall Rogers of D1 Baseball uh, basically saying that he uh, he thinks Oregon State is exploring being independent in baseball as well. So <laughs> I mean, that'd be a kind of a fun I, twist. They are good enough, right? Like, yeah. You, you I'm, to your enough. point, I would think the big West would love to have Oregon state baseball. You can mean like they, they, they would, I would think, I mean, I don't know, unless they're like, you know, that would hurt too many of their other teams. But they're too come good. On. They're too good to have at a conference. And the beefs, you know, it's not like they're just crushing everybody. They're still a good program. Uh, you'd want them in there. Uh, 503-417-7575. Any reaction to that with Oregon State and Washington State finding footing with the West Coast Conference in men's and women's basketball and all D1 sports outside, of course, of football and baseball. Mark's called in from Portland on line one. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, happy holidays to you guys. Yeah, um, you too. 
Hey, I just want to know uh, as the as we're breaking up the Pac-12, how many uh, how many other schools can say since 2011 they played in two championship games? They won the only playoff game in the Rose Bowl in record fashion, 59 points, 640 yards. And if assuming Oregon can beat uh, Liberty, they'll win their fifth uh, New Year's Day BCS bowl game since 2012. Uh, played in six, so. I don't think there's anybody in the Pac-12 as we're leaving the conference that has a resume close to that. So, I mean, yeah, they haven't beat the Huskies with Dan Lanning, but they had a 12-game winning streak against the Huskies. So when the Huskies get to six, wake me up. So, I mean, Oregon's kind of – you could go back to 1994. They've kind of – if you're going to as – the, as the league's breaking up, they – they were the best team overall in the in the Pac-12. They came in first or second over 50% of the time. So for a guy that watched in the 70s and 80s when they were horrible, it, this season was awesome, and next year it's going to be – there'll be a playoff team. So this yeah. team next year will be getting ready in the playoffs. If they get to the conference title game and lose, they're still going to get in the playoffs. So well, I want to keep you on the line for a second here, Mark, because I think you bring up a really good point. There's no doubt that over the long haul, Oregon's got a more impressive resume than, than UW. And you mentioned the 12-game win streak, et cetera. Call me when UW wins six in a row. But <laughs> even, even yourself will grant that the last few matchups have had way higher stakes. In, in these games than than at any point in the twelve game winning streak, you know, for, for both for both programs. Way higher mutual stakes for Oregon and Washington. And Washington's won all three of them and they've got a chance now to win more playoff games than you have, um, you know, in the in the history of the CFP. How worried are you, if at all, of Washington's chances to beat Texas and maybe win a national championship? There's no way as an Oregon fan you can be okay with that possibility. Ah, uh. Yeah, I mean, most of me doesn't want that to happen, but a little of me wants to be able to say, you know what, we lost to the defending national champions by three points twice, so we weren't a bad team this year. I think I think we really get caught up in, you know, saying that, you know, like Jim Kelly was a choke artist, and, you know, I mean, maybe the Huskies were just a little bit better than Oregon this year. I, I, I feel, I can understand what you're saying. It, it looks more like it's coaching, but, man, I mean, they ran the football down our throats. I, I was shocked in that uh, rematch. So you got to kind of tip your hats to them. But I don't think they're. I don't think they're going to win this playoff game. So I mean, mm. if, if they do, um, you know, uh, it, it 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 ties what Oregon did. But right now, Oregon's the only team that's won a playoff game, and they did it in record fashion. So uh, they're a four-point underdog. Yep. The Huskies. So what I do to, you know, I'm going to bet on the Huskies to win on the money line, and that way I'm going to be happy no matter what, because that's <laughs> probably the best play. We can always you count know? on you for the emotional hedge, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's I'm just saying, uh, this wasn't a bad season as a right. longtime Oregon fan. This is, this is a great season, and we, you know, we got, we got shafted getting Liberty instead of Ohio State. We should be playing Ohio State. You know, I mean, those are the two, the Big Ten, the Pac-12. It would have been really nice to see that matchup before this all breaks up. But, you know, I'm I'm still going to get excited. It's New Year's, and they're playing on New Year's Day, and they earned their way to that game. It's not, not an easy thing to do. They're not only the second-best team in the Pac-12, they dominated everybody else. Nope. Appreciate, yeah, appreciate the phone call. I think this year the Fiesta Bowl got the group of five, um, you know, uh, agreement that rotates, you know, whoever gets the highest ranked group of five champ 
uh, you know, it rotates which bowl game gets them, and the Fiesta uh, got them. So that's how Oregon ended up having to play Liberty. I think most of us would have rather have seen like SMU in that game, um, you know, as a more intriguing matchup. But Ohio State obviously would have been a, a pretty fun game as well uh, for the Ducks to play in that one, although we'll get to see that next year anyway. So that's going to be pretty interesting and a lot of fun to track. I, I think that's a good point. You know, and for those of you that have rooted for the Ducks for a long time, you go back to the 70s, et cetera. You go back to the Webfoots or whatever. You were there for the Tall Furs, you know, national title in basketball in 39, beating Ohio State like 40 to 20 or whatever the final score was in that one. Like, there's some of you out there that have watched a ton of Duck football each and every year that may have been to every game, may have been to every game at Autzen for the last two decades, three decades, or at least most of them. And, you know, I don't have that breadth of firsthand personal experience to be able to point to it and say, hey, we were in some valleys, man. We were in some valleys as a program, and look where we are now. I can handle a little bit of disappointment, uh, even if it's against the Washington Huskies. I get that. I fully appreciate that. I would say as a Seahawk fan, that's probably where it resonates with me the most. Like, I remember one of my earliest Seahawk memories crying as a kid because isn't that the best memories is when you're crying as a kid was I believe the 98 season. And in my head, it was always a playoff game. But when I've gone back and checked it, I think it was just like a week 14 or week 15 game Seahawks in the old Meadowlands against the New York jets. It was a Dennis Erickson Seahawks team, if memory serves. And we lost to the jets and it eliminated us from the playoffs contention because Vinny Testaverde, old green balls, uh, had a QB sneak from like the two yard line, and he was clearly down at the one. He was down at the one, but this was pre instant replay, and he pushed himself in, and they called it a touchdown. And the Jets won the game and eliminated the Seahawks, and my heart was just broken. I couldn't, my heart was broken. I couldn't believe that the refs would miss a call like that. That's my earliest real Seahawk memory, which is, you know, kind of endearing in a way and also uh, kind of sad in another way. But it, it ju- because of that, I appreciated the heck out of getting to the playoffs for finally getting to the playoffs now in the NFC in 2003 and everything that came with that. And here we are. We are a wild card team, and we are going to go play Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers in Lambeau Field. Let's go. And that was a crazy, crazy wild card game. Goes to overtime. Matt Hasselbeck. We want the ball. We're going to score. Take the first drive, back foot, out route to Alex Bannister for Lord knows why. And Al Harris picks it off and wins the game, takes it to the house. I cried all over again, just like it was 98. 2004 wild card. We win the division. We host the division rival Mike Martz and the Rams and freaking Cam Cleland has a day and has a touchdown and Mark Bulger goes in there and Here we are, last drive of the game, and Hasselbeck over the middle to Bobby Ingram, and Ingram drops the ball in the end zone, and we lose to the Rams. Then finally in 05, we break through. We can't be stopped. We're the one seed in the NFC. We crush the Redskins. We demolish the Panthers, and we go to the Super Bowl to face the AFC's six-seed Pittsburgh Steelers, and we lose. Also, the refs, but who's counting? My point with all that is... That made 2013 all the more sweeter when we finally got there, broke through, won the whole thing. 
as a Duck fan, you've seen so much Duck football. As a Beaver fan, you've seen so much Beaver football. You know what valleys look like. You know what peaks feel like as well for your respective programs. And you're aware that you'll go through these natural undulations uh, from time to time. Sometimes it spans three years. Sometimes it spans a decade. As Mark in Portland just pointed out, in the CFP era or going back to 2010 or even 2012, no one's played in more New Year's Six games in the Pac-12 than the Oregon Ducks. No one's won more of, of them, and no one's gone to the national championship like Oregon has. And they will always have that. No one won that 12-game win streak against your rival Washington. So why are we crying over three straight wins for for UW so far? Call me when they get half of that. And I, I fully understand that. I do. But at the same time, I'm thinking about one Phil Knight. I'm thinking about Uncle Phil. And time waits for no man. And urgency has to be at its highest right now. Like, let's be real. You got to win a national championship to really bring this into full picture, into full glow. That's the idea, is winning it all. That's the idea of, of the collective and the NIL and being flush with cash is you got to win it all. Like, them's the stakes. That's the goal. Is it likely? No, it's not likely. That's why it's damn hard to do. But that's that's what you're trying to achieve and to do so before Uncle Phil passes. Not that he ever will. Because, he, you know, he'll live forever. You know, God save the king. But at the same time, you got to realize that these losses to your rival, they do hurt. They're not inconsequential. And being run on like this... That that's tough in the biggest of moments on the biggest stages. These big games really matter, uh, and just because you played in a lot of them doesn't mean that j- when you lose you can just say, "Hey, you know, we've had hard times before, so I'll just take them now." Like at some point you got to win some of these big, big games, and unfortunately, when you lose them, that becomes a talking point for a long time until you prove them wrong. So that's what Dan Lanning and company have to do moving forward as they go into the Big Ten. Went on a bit of a a rant there, but I felt it in my bones. We'll hit the break. We'll come back. We'll take some phone calls and a big splash on this early National Signing Day right here. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Cazano on 750 The Game. Junior newbie Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano. Hope you're enjoying your Wednesday. National signing day. Early signing day. Uh, Ducks with uh, a banner class once again. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of headlines on Michigan State, but uh, let's see how uh, Jonathan and company did. Uh, Oregon State adding a, a couple of good uh, three-star pieces, but obviously it's going to be a, it's, uh, it's a long-term kind of retool with uh, Trent Bray and company. Uh, good building things back at Oregon State. Taking some of your phone calls as well as Beavs and Cougs are going to land in men's and women's basketball and all D1 sports outside of football and baseball are headed to the West Coast Conference starting in July of next summer. Let's go out to the phone lines. Dave is in Tumwater and he's called the show. Hey, Dave. Hi, guys. Uh, Thanks uh, for taking my call. Yeah, it looks like uh, Trent Bray has got his fingers in the dike. He's uh, stopped the bleeding. It got some good uh, signees there. That's uh, good, uh, good to see. And it goes to show, furthermore, uh, what a panic move Jonathan uh, Smith was. Because uh, if he had stayed, you can only imagine 
uh, how much better things would look, particularly, in, and this is my main point in calling, particularly in light of what I would maintain is the masterful job Scott Barnes and Pat John have done negotiating their way through these currents. They're on, a, they're on their way to ultimate victory in control of the conference assets. Um, they have refused to play cheap and just fall into the uh, Mountain West Conference lap. They're playing hard to get. Uh, they, can, they can always end up there, but clearly they're on, they're on a path where they're putting those teams on excellent paths going forward, football with the Mountain West, with a reasonable shot at getting the 12 seed in a college football playoff going forward starting next year. And the basketball line, that's a, that's, and I'll get the baseballs here in a sec, they've got, they, they landed in the best possible conference for West Coast basketball. Let me just ask parenthetically on this, when was the last time Gonzaga played in Eugene? Because they're going to be playing in Corvallis the next two uh, seasons after this. And that's going, to, that's going to be a big-time home game for the Bees on that occasion, plus some other schools, St. Mary's, uh, Pepperdine, some other uh, people coming in. And as for baseball, I would just say this. Again, I think they're just threading the needle on every sport. I think, in the end, if they end up going to a conference uh, up until such point as they rebuild the pack, whatever that becomes, they just got to wait for the ACC to collapse and then things will become much more fluid again. And that's only a matter of time, by the way. But I maintain the West Coast Conference, if they end up in a conference other than one they rebuild, is likelier than the, uh, than the Big West because every school in the Big West is in California, and with the exception of Hawaii, interestingly enough, which is Mountain West in football. The closest game would be Davis. You've got Irvine, Fullerton, good brands there. I mean, those are some schools that have been to Omaha, but you've got University of Portland, you've got Gonzaga, reasonably good in baseball, Pepperdine, uh, Santa Clara, Loyola Marymount. There's some reasonable good brands there if they end up in a conference. But in the end, I think Oregon State has, has enough, I'll call it exit velocity, <laughs> uh, exiting the, gra- the limited gravitational field of Corvallis, much like the Ducks with Phil Knight's money, had exit exit velocity to transcend the limitations of Eugene, principally with football, but maybe the other sports as well. But the Oregon State baseball team has achieved exit velocity. They can escape the gravity, and they can play a national cup with the three national championships. They can play a national caliber um, baseball schedule most of the game. All right, thanks. We're up against a break. Uh, I think Dave could go on forever. Um, I, I like the exit velo. That's fun. That's a little uh, nice little pun. And yeah, I think uh, Beaver baseball. Beaver baseball is going to be fun. They're going to land on on their feet and still be a, a national contender. And it helps to have won some titles along the way. Hour two coming up. B F F T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Well, appreciate you being here, hour two of the show. Man, it's crazy to talk some sports. Love it. Fired up. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, in for John Canzano. 
are going to talk a little Blazers later on. They won. Steven gave out plus seven cash money. We're going to talk signing day, of course. We did that at length in hour one, but we'll keep it moving. Dan Lanning, golly, he keeps doing it. Just kick back and smoke another cigar, Dan. He keeps doing it. We'll play some audio from him. Trent Bray as well. It was a bit of a lighter class, predictably, for the Beavers, but a couple of cool stories in there, too, and some talent, you know. A few three-star guys in there, a couple local guys in there. Uh, Going to the WCC Beaver basketball, Coug basketball. Taking some of your phone calls on that as well at 503-417-7575. Got to get some NFL talk in as well along the show. We'll have some best of editions of the Bald Face Truth with John Cazano later this week and next week as well around the holiday season. We'll allow uh, Stephen and myself to take some time off as well, which will be good. And, of course, John will be back shortly after the holidays. And uh, we'll keep this thing moving into 2024. But appreciate it. But first, I got to know, Stephen, did you end up leaving the nine-year-old and the five-year-old at home yesterday or this morning whenever you and your lovely wife made your trip to the store to buy more Christmas presents? This was a big polarizing topic on the show yesterday. You you asked listeners, am I being a bad dad if, for the sake of going to a store to buy more presents, I have to leave my nine-year-old and soon-to-be five-year-old at home by themselves for a little bit. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you weren't listening yesterday, the the five year old, to be five year old, his birthday is Christmas, so you know it's got to be extra special for him. We got to try to make it a more special day for him. But uh, we decided against it. We we did not do that. I did, in fact, go to a store and went shopping by myself a little bit after the show. But we did not go uh, as a husband and wife. We decided against it. I think. My wife was never really on board. I thought maybe I could talk her into it, especially if I had a lot of callers that had my back. And I tell you what, <laughs> you callers, you callers had my back. You, you know, I would say it was majority was in my favor. Like, yeah, they're fine. Leave them home because the store is five minutes away. But that final caller, Judah, I mean, I won't forget it. You know, I had a, I, I told my wife, I said, that caller said, you know, it's going to take 30 seconds. And if you can forgive yourself for the rest of your life for those 30 seconds when your young one gets hurt or something, then do it. And I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself. We looked at each other. We we're like, whoa, that got real, real serious real quick. So we decided against it. Um, I still feel like I'm a good dad, even if I would have chose to go and left him <laughs> home. But we decided to make the adult decision. We decided to be adults last night and uh, not do it. We'll just have to figure out a time when we can you know, drop the kids off at the grandparents or at their friends or something like that. We can go do it uh, together. But no, we did not decide to do it. And I think we probably made... The right choice. The the grow we made the grown up choice. Maybe not the most uh you know <laughs> not not the most popular choice, not but the, the most gro- popular choice. The grown up choice. Not think, taking the yeah. risk. Yeah. You know, the exciting choice would have been, hey, leave them at home, yeah. see what happens. Live but, on the uh, seat the seat of our pants right there. And think, on the uh, edge. Yeah. Someone I think it was a seventy year old listener uh out there that's got a wealth of experience called in and said, You will never forgive yourself if something happened to your to your little guy. And you're like, okay, that does it. I'm, yeah, not, I, I'm I, not leaving it at him at home with his nine-year-old. You brother. know, I'm not afraid to admit, like, you know, being a dad is not my favorite thing in the world. Like, I, you know, I love my kids. I would never change it for the world. But you know what? I, I, I don't love being a dad. But man, when he said that, I, it, you know, put it in perspective. Like, yeah, I, I couldn't live with myself. I'd, I'd feel terrible. And uh, yeah, so I, I wouldn't do anything without those guys. So. I think we made the made the adult choice, Jude. I'm really I'm really maturing in front of your eyes. You are. You, you are. You're really growing up. Which uh, at least that could be said for one of us. 
uh, on this here show. My time will come someday, I'm sure, when I, you know, mature at some point. But don't count don't, on it. Don't do it quickly, though. <laughs> you know, you know wait, wait long, as long as you can to mature. That's, that's my advice. You know, it's so funny. I got a, I, I turned 31 last summer, and my Grammy still writes me birthday cards because <sighs> she's the best. Second shout-out to Grammy today. And uh, but my little my little baby girl, she's like almost two and a half. She loves reading the cards or having me read the cards to her. And uh, she basically has them memorized at this point. But my Grammy, my sweet Grammy wrote to me and said, how old are you now? Thirty one. Yikes. Where has the time gone? Ooh, she pulled a Jamal Adams, just went yikes on you. She totally pulled a Jamal Adams and went yikes on me for turning thirty one. So now all my little baby girl does when she opens the card, she says, what are you, 31? Yikes. Yikes, Daddy. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now my little girl's making fun of me for how old I am. And she she's Jamal Adams yet. in you, too. She is Jamal Adams in me. Uh, which, by the way, we, we said this yesterday, but Jamal Adams was not at the stadium, man. He did not even show up to the stadium on Monday Night Football. There is some, there's some stuff going on with, with that guy. And uh, I don't think he's fully mentally right. I don't think he's mentally there or engaged or or maybe not even physically right. You look at that 49er tape from that second game. Hell, both games. But that second game in particular, even in the run game, I mean, the guy is running away from the play. Like, he is running away from the action, running away from, from the tackle. And you would think against a team like the Eagles, you would want a guy like Jamal Adams to play because the Eagles are a run heavy team or at least more run oriented than a lot of teams and uh, different from the 49er run game, but still a power oriented run game. You would want Jamal Adams in there. And Pete was like, we're better off without you. We'll just play Quandre Diggs and Julian love the whole game and be fine. And they did exactly that. Um, But man, I I rewatched Monday night's game uh, about, well, I've rewatched the highlights and then I went back and watched the entire game broadcast as well on NFL plus and a few things stood out one Jalen Hurts did not play his best game and I know everybody saw that in the moment but it was reinforced to me in real time numerous like high leverage third downs the third down that he just misses Devontae Smith wide open on a shallow cross and decides to throw a deep ball to AJ Brown instead bizarre decision because Devontae Smith was wide open. He could have gained 40 yards. That's a third down in the fourth quarter, okay? Like, the entire game is changed just because he decided to throw to A.J. Brown instead of Devontae. I don't know why. Um, the interceptions, uh, Julian Love got away with a little bit of a hold um, on, you know, Quez Watkins, but sometimes that's called, sometimes it's not. Frankly, it was a pretty bad ball anyway, and Julian Love had position in the first place. I don't really really mind that. Does the does the hurt stuff make you worry about the Eagles going forward? Because last season he was so good and he didn't make these type of mistakes. I mean, I think Hurts has to play at his elite game for the Eagles to be a contender. I really think this is yeah. a problem going forward. Well, and I'm not sure if how much have it had to do with him being sick too. That's the other thing. Yeah, like he was sick. Yeah, you he, can't he was late now. getting out there. And trust me, look. I know Seattle is not the home field advantage that it once was, but that's probably one of the last places you want to go when you're sick, flying late across the country to play a primetime game at, you know, 830 Eastern time. Like when that to me, that's one of the last situations you want to be in. It's still a tough environment. You can ask anybody. That's a really tough environment 
to play in, and Jalen did not play very well. Yeah, he had a couple big runs in there, but decision-making wasn't there. Accuracy on some of the balls wasn't there. I can totally see why A.J. Brown you know, gets a little bit fed up um, in the same way that D.K. Metcalf gets fed up at times. And we compared those two guys, but look who showed up in the biggest clutch moments of that game. It was D.K., who had like one, maybe two catches the entire game going into that final drive and then makes three massive catches for about 58 yards, including the sideline shot that set up the Jackson Smith and Jigba touchdown on the next play. I mean, like that was a huge, massive win for Seattle, but going back and watching it, man, a lot of luck involved too. And that's what I said. I said, look, you'll need some luck. You'll need some bounces of the ball and you'll need a couple of turnovers. You'll need some calls from the officials to go your way. I thought there were a couple calls that went against Seattle, but you talk about the Kelsey false start on the tush push. Talk about the the no PI on Julian Love too. The the PI that they called against Bradbury on DK Metcalf, which was a PI, but it's fifty fifty kind of gray zone there. Uh, Seattle got the breaks that they needed to win that football game, and man, it just it was such a relief. It doesn't really mean that Seattle's a great team. Obviously, they're seven and seven, but they survived the gauntlet that was. Niners, Cowboys, Niners, Eagles, and they're still in the playoff race. And that's all I really wanted at the time was to be able to survive that little four-game gauntlet by staying in the playoff race. They didn't do themselves any favors by losing to the Rams going into that stretch. Uh, But at the same time, you know, they're still in it, and they've got another stretch. They've got Titans, uh, Steelers, Cardinals to round out the year, and they're still in it. So um, excited for, for the Seahawks even though we all know the the 49ers are the class of the NFC right now. Uh, It is early signing period, uh, National Signing Day today. We've been talking about it throughout the show. We'll continue to talk about it here. Plus, Spencer McLaughlin, uh, Oregon.contributor to 750thegame.com, always has good insights. He's got his finger on the pulse of all of this. He'll join us coming up at 424, so you want to be here for that. We'll play some sound from Dan Lanning and Trent Bray coming up here momentarily as well. The big highlights for Oregon, anywhere you look, they're a top five recruiting class in the country now. They were a top 10 class entering the day, and they vaulted a few spots because they flipped a pair of four-star receivers. Jeremiah McClellan, Ohio State commit, no longer flipped that guy from the Buckeyes to the Oregon Duckies. He's from St. Louis, Missouri. Dan Lanning goes into his home state and flips Jeremiah McClellan to Oregon. And that's an Ohio State program that, you know, is used to taking on big-time elite wide receivers and turning them into NFL stars. So Jeremiah McClellan spurring Brian Hartline in Ohio State and coming to Oregon. That's a big one. Then, just moments later, four-star receiver Ryan Pelham from Long Beach, California, Millican High School in Long Beach, 5'11", buck 70. So not a big dude, but really fast and really explosive and exciting. Uh, the 19th nationally ranked wide receiver. He was committed to USC from the summer. Even on his Twitter timeline I was looking at today, he's posting t- pictures with Lincoln Riley and the USC coaching staff within the last two weeks saying fight on and doing the, the, the two fingers and all, all that uh, SoCal does. Today, out of nowhere... He flips to Oregon, and so that makes it two four-star receivers flipping from other big-time programs and now Big Ten rivals, Ohio State and USC, come and do the Oregon Ducks. So that's what's vaulted Oregon's projected eighth-ranked class or other top-ten class into the top five with a couple of big-time four-star receiver additions. 
Uh, that is that is really good stuff and pretty dramatic stuff. I got a couple more notes on Ryan Pelham that I want to get to as well. But if you've got any uh, thoughts on that, you can call in at 503 417 7575. John's called in. He's called in from Vancouver with some thoughts. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Hey, good afternoon, guys. So since uh, uh, Stephen's already made his decision on the Christmas shopping, I feel safe in telling this story. I don't know if you guys heard about the Arizona family on Saturday. The dad left five kids at home to go Christmas shopping. And I don't know what exactly happened, but there was a fire and the kids didn't survive. So <clears throat> I didn't want to share that story yesterday. <laughs> until well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for waiting. <laughs> Yeah. Oh and, man, Stephen, you made the right choice, uh, my friend. Now here, here comes everybody. I, there were people supporting you in in leaving the kids at home, but I tell you what, there's nothing like the emotional statement made by John in Vancouver and I believe Bob in Hillsborough the last two days. Uh, there's no way in heck you could feel good about yourself had you have gone shopping for 20 minutes. Thank now. you for talking Thanks, sanity John. into both. Into Ooh, both boy, golly. I mean, I. I think it was Bob that said it just takes one time, and yeah. you know, it's unfortunate. But on a better note, on the recruiting side, um, you were spot on. On you know, with Oregon, they've been actually for I think since Phil decided to go all in with his retirement money, they've been in the top ten, top five in recruiting, and it hasn't translated to results on the field. Of course, all the coaching instability they've gone through probably contributed to a lot of that. Yeah. But, um, that that four-star receiver they flipped from Ohio State, you know, Ohio State signed two five-star receivers today, so right. they probably couldn't afford a third <laughs> great receiver. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic, all of that, you know, and I appreciate the call, John. I wouldn't go so far as to say it hasn't resulted um, in wins on the field because I think it has, you know, a lot of their recruiting. It just hasn't. Well, it depends on what you – Consider winning. Well, it's, if it's, it's championship it's, or bust. Then no, they look. Haven't. If they, we'll put it this way: if Mario didn't recruit at the level he recruited at, Dan probably doesn't win ten games his first year, and you know, eleven games his second year. The counter to that would be, well, yeah, but Dan got Bo Nix, and Mario never had Bo Nix, and the quarterback's the most important position on the field. But when Mario called in the day he took the Miami job, the day he left, I'll never forget that. I know I bring that up, but I still think that's a really unique thing to do. He said, look, I, I left the cupboards full. I left the cupboards full. Like, there's a lot of young pups still in there. And some coaches will say that to try to placate the fan base, but I think he was right. Like, there was still a lot of really good young talent that stayed at Oregon. Um, it wasn't quite like, you know, the, the exodus, as it were, that we are seeing at Oregon State. And then Rob Mullins nailed another hire. And by the way, John's mentioned this before, but holy cow, Rob Mullins. I mean, you know, who who do you pray to? You know, you. <laughs> I don't know if, look, obviously we know what Willie Taggart became, but I, I think there's a version of Willie that could have been pretty successful at Oregon. Probably not, you know, beating Ohio State on the road like, like Mario did or doing what Dan's doing, but... To go from Willie to Mario to Dan, and by the way, the way you got Mario was getting Willie. Like to go from Willie to Mario to Dan after decades of of stability and promoting from within and the Oregon culture, and we know, like we know, there's notable Duck athletes still and Duck alumni that 
it chafes at him to to go outside the family, like the letter and everything. Like we we get that. It's a very tough thing to do at times, but man, there's no one out there that would say that Dan Lanning was a bad hire. There's no one out there that would say Mario Cristobal was a bad hire either. Even though, you know, he he left to take his one true uh dream job, his one true love. But I mean, it's incredible what Rob Mullins has been able to do amid that coaching instability to still have these kind of recruiting returns is kind of insane if you think about it. Like, that's wild. And it also speaks to Dan Lanning kicking ass and, and taking it, some names and the coaching staff there. And, is, is it and more it helps coaching staff? Phil's funding. I was going to say, what, what's the most important thing? Is it the money, no. the Phil money, or is it the coaching staff? It's impossible to know. It's impossible to know. I feel like know. it's the money. Yeah. I mean, that that has to matter, but you're also beating out USC for some guys. You don't think USC is comparable money to Oregon. I mean, Oregon might have more, but is it just like like dominating USC? No, it's probably comparable, and what's likely going on is guys are vibing more with Dan Lanning and Lachlan and Alik Terry and some of the big-time recruits that they're getting, Tosh. Um, you know, the, the guys are, are vibing with those guys, the receivers coach who I'm blanking on at the moment, but... Getting, get, it's it's being relatable, being authentic, everything that goes into being a good recruiter. Oh, and by the way, the NIL compensation certainly helps. Um, it's a fa- it's fascinating dynamics. All the behind-the-scenes stuff is fascinating dynamics. And how coaches probably go about touting the collectives. I don't think Dan Lanning is going out to anybody and being like, dude, by the way, we, we're flushed with cash. He's not doing that. He doesn't have to. He's, no, he Everyone doesn't have does. to. When you have the cash, you don't talk about the cash. You know, yeah, you know no, what I mean? No doubt. No doubt. And oh, I know. That, I know from experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, Unlike myself, who is constantly talking about how much money they have, Dan is going around. He is he is a confident, cool as a cucumber, secure son of a gun, man. Like, and I really vibe with that. And I think recruits do as well. Uh, he knows who he is, and he stays within himself. And I think that is what recruits jive with. And then the money helps, and that just makes the whole situation that much easier to uh, to accept and buy into. And that's why guys like. This receiver that flipped from USC, and this wasn't like, I think there were shades of like, oh, where is Ryan Pelham going? But most of what I said, like, he was pretty strong USC. You know, he committed there in the summertime. He was tweeting USC stuff on his timeline even a couple weeks ago. And then today flips to Oregon. Yeah, I think there's some NIL money involved there. Without question, there's got to be. But that's also turning a SoCal kid away from SC and up to you. And by the way, Ryan Pelham. He's a high school senior, but he's got a little boy. Like, he's a father of a little one and is deciding to move from Southern California to Eugene. Like, to me, that's a really significant thing. You don't do that unless you're really vibing well with the coaches and you've got the right structure in place to be able to support yourself and your little one, man. Like, And that's a unique kind of recruiting situation that not a lot of guys are in, obviously. But, you know, Ryan Pelham, his big brother is his head coach at his high school, at Milliken. And his big brother gave an interview, the head coach in, in the summer, and was like, we are really proud of what we do sending guys to USC. It's something that we're trying to be a, a branded with, Milliken to, to USC. Like, we want to do that. And he's a USC commit, and today, lo and behold, he's flipping up here to the Oregon Ducks. Like, that's a really significant thing, especially for someone who's already a father of a little one about to go into college. Massive. Uh, Josh is in Vancouver. He's called in on line one. Always like talking to Josh. How you doing? Hey, man. I'm doing good. How you doing, bud? Great. 
Good, good. Hey, so a couple thoughts. First off, I, I think the last caller uh, just – it's a cheesy take to say that recruiting uh, for Oregon hasn't produced uh, results on the field. Uh, it's always interesting to me when people's perspective is is that you're only successful if you win a national title. I, I'm not sure if anybody's aware of this or not, but in the last five years there were only five national title winners, and I think that came from three programs. Uh, you know, it's not like, you know, five teams every year winning a national title, and the national title is the only barometer of if you have success or not. I mean, you know, yeah, Oregon ultimately didn't get where they wanted to get this year, but at the end of the season, they're right there, right? They're right there with the Pac-12 title on the line, with a playoff berth, you know, in their grasp, and ultimately they came up short, and it is what it is, and you you know, you make the improvements you have to and you move on to the next season. Uh, but to say that, you know, that it's not producing, you know, on the field is, is I think, a little bit uh, nearsighted. The other thing, too, that I wanted to just add to the conversation was uh, I, I would be hesitant to, to give Mario Cristobal a lot, of, uh, a lot of credit for the winning that Dan Lanning has done because if you go and you look at the numbers, the numbers have proven that Oregon was one of the highest turnover-rated teams in the last two years since Mario Cristobal left. Now, when Mario Cristobal uh, announced he was going to Miami and came on John's show and did the interview and said that he let, left the cupboard full, he did leave the cupboard full with a bunch of four- and five-star guys. Um, however, after he left, a bunch of those guys left, and many of those guys that left were four- and five-star guys that went on to other programs and have absolutely produced nothing. So there's, you know, it, coaching, it, it's not just about recruiting good players. You have to develop good players. And if you don't develop the talent you bring in, it doesn't matter whether you have uh, five-star plus, plus, plus guys at every position, and it's the highest-rated recruiting class of all time. Texas A&M just three years ago had the highest-rated recruiting class of all time. What did it produce for them? It didn't produce anything. So uh, I think Dan Lanning's doing a great job. I think the recruiting is a good element of uh, a successful coach. But more importantly, I think Oregon is clearly doing a good job developing the talent that they're bringing in right now, which I think will produce better results on the field as they move forward. Uh, love, love you guys' work. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate when you guys are on the show filling in for John. Uh, I'll keep calling in just as I would if John was there. Love you, boys. Have a great Christmas. We'll talk soon. And, and the other thing to appreciate you, Josh, is is having the cupboards full. And, yeah, like they, they went other places. But they, do you have the right guys at the right positions? Like a Jackson Powers Johnson wins Remington Award. You know, it's a Mario recruit. But he sticks around and he stays. Like that's not one of those guys that – ended up bolting and leaving. Now, he probably also stayed because he believed in Dan Lanning. Like, it's symbiotic. Like, it, it all works itself out. Troy Franklin, Mario Recruit, comes in, stays, you know, should have been a Belenikoff finalist, whatever, but great player. Got, you know, right player that stayed at the right position. It's not like there was a mass exodus of a bunch of these impact players. And to Josh's point, the perceived impact players that may have may, may have left didn't really fare so well at their other schools. Um, and I think that that's well taken. Uh, by the way, I did see Trickwes Bridges landed at Florida. The uh, the duck transfer. He's going to Billy Napier's Florida Gators. So you bring up a lot of interesting interesting points. But I will say, I think Oregon, because Mario won the game at Ohio State as well, I think Oregon still became a, an attractive place for either transfers to go or recruits to go amidst the coaching turnover because they're able to go on the road and win big games, and that's what Mario did. 
you know, and that's what Dan Lanning, I think, benefited from to some degree. Maybe not to a great degree, but it matters when millions of people are watching you kick C.J. Stroud's ass. Not that they did. He threw for like 400 yards. But I'd say kick the Ohio State defense's ass in that game. That was that matters a great deal. And in, in the in national perception had to have played a role as well in Bo Nix. Wanted to come to uh, to Nike Town. Yeah, and the way that some of their guys has developed too. I mean, you look at Landing, and, and we talk about Oregon State being the program that is known to develop guys in the state. Like Oregon's done that as well. Like not only is it the guys that they've recruited or they've they kept from the Mario days, but it's these transfer guys that were highly touted that didn't necessarily perform, you know, at their old schools. They come in and they perform better. I mean, even look at a Bo Nix. Like Auburn didn't want Bo Nix. He was not wanted. And he comes to Oregon and becomes a Heisman finalist, becomes one of the best quarterbacks in the nation, like maybe a potential first-round pick. I don't know. Like, that's how good he became, and you got to give credit to the coaching staff on that. Like, it's not it's not just the recruiting. It is the developing. I think Lanning has, and his staff have done that. Now, it hasn't turned out to make it into a Pac-12 title or a college football playoff race, but you can't get that every single season. I, th- I think right now you just look at it and you say, are we in contention? And there's no doubt about it that Oregon is in contention to make the cultural playoff. They're in contention to win the league, and they've done that the last couple seasons. So, you know, I was playing a little devil's advocate earlier with you earlier saying, you know, well, they haven't won the big one. Well, yeah, they haven't won the big one, but they're right there. They're right there, and it's just one of those things where eventually you will get a win at some point. Like, it's not – they don't have a losing culture at Oregon. It's definitely a winning culture. So I think at some point, you know – They'll get that dub. They'll get in the college football playoff again. They'll get the conference title. And then we won't even think about, you know, the, the three straight losses to Washington. And we'll be saying, okay, Dan Lanning is that guy. Yeah. Spencer McLaughlin, locked on Ducks, locked on Pac-12, and Ducks contributor to 750thegame.com. He joins us next. It's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn right here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Another impressive signing day haul for the Oregon Ducks. Already a top 10 class have vaulted into the top five with a couple of big-time flips. What does it all mean, and how does it uh, shake out for the roster going into the Big Ten in 2024? Spencer McLaughlin covers Oregon Duck football on uh, the Locked on Ducks podcast, Locked on Pac-12 podcast, and, of course, an Oregon Duck contributor to 750thegame.com, and he joins us now. Uh, big picture takeaways today, Spencer, uh, from signing day. Where where does your mind go when you look at the haul that Dan Lanning and company brought in? Yeah, pre- pretty impressive group of players there. But I think the most impressive element of all of the shooter is that not a single player who was verbally committed to the Ducks coming into signing day, this early signing window, which you know is a discussion of its own, not a single one flipped away from the Ducks. They had players flipped to the Ducks at positions where they had, you know, a couple of decommitments in the last uh, couple of weeks or months, but they didn't have a single player who was verbally committed that decided, no, I'm going uh, to go play my college football elsewhere, at least to, you know, begin uh, someone's college career. We all know that uh, a healthy number of these guys will be in the transfer portal one day. That's the way college football just kind of works. But, yeah, I, I think that was what stood out to me the most is everyone who was verbally committed stayed verbally committed, and uh, I think that Dan Lanning's got himself a talented class, and he just continues to show his uh, his, his moxie as a recruiter. Now, uh, either side of the ball, defense or offense, um, wh- wh- who do you think had the better day recruiting-wise today? 
Yeah, I, I, I'd say defense. You know, it's a defense, uh, a defensively heavy class uh, for the Ducks, which shouldn't be a surprise. You know, Dan Lanning being a former defensive coordinator at Georgia, Tosh Lupoy arguably the best individual recruiter on the staff, at least historically when you look at his pedigree. Lanning would be up there as well. Both guys are on that side of the football. And you look at the big five-star names, and they are on the defensive side of the ball. And Aiden Breland and Elijah Rushing. And you look at a lot of the high-end talent that's in the class. And there's, you know, Braden Platt at linebacker. If you open Degwu from Pennsylvania at uh, defensive back. Or Aaron Flowers at safety from Texas. I mean, there are just a lot of guys on that side of the ball. I think that's kind of what you would come to expect. And it's not as if Oregon is lacking for high-end talent on the offensive side of the ball, whether you look at their transfer portal hall with two quarterbacks they brought in or guys who are already on the roster. And then there are some good players offensively in, in this class. You know, Jeremiah McClellan, I think, generated the most headlines today, flipping from Ohio State. And Steve Wilfong described him as the most ready-to-contribute receiver that's, that's out there, or one of them anyway, and he's top 100 players. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it, having a defensive lean is to be expected for, for Oregon going forward, and I, I think they're still going to, you know, ha- have players from this class that you look back and say, yeah, they were big contributors from the offensive side of the ball too. When you approach a signing day like this, I know you've seen a lot of them come and go, and uh, it's so easy to get really excited and, and hyped and five-star, four-star, you know, flip, signing, and then, you know, it's also a different world, Spencer, in, in the age of the transfer <laughs> portal and NIL. You know, where does your mind go when you balance everything between excitement and optimism over highly heralded incoming talent with the reality that decent chance these guys don't make it three, four years and, you know, the world will keep turning? Well, first of all, I love your characterization that I've just seen so many of these in my days <laughs> as, a, as a broadcaster and as an Oregon fan in in general, um, I, I'd say, well, anyway. That's you old head, you. I don't ma- Such an old head. <laughs> I don't want to make you guys feel too old o- o- over there. But I think that for, for Oregon fans or fans of any program listening to this, like, in the transfer portal world, you, you do need to understand when you bring in a class of 20 or more kids the way Oregon has or Washington will or Washington State has as well up in Pullman, I know Oregon State doesn't quite have the volume that I'd be yet. I'd be surprised if that doesn't change before uh, the next signing day in February. I, I think you just have to understand what the landscape is. And if it's in a high school recruiting class of, you know, 20 to 25 kids, you're going to have, you know, a couple maybe who make an impact as true freshmen. And, and in terms of, you know, fully standout stars, you're probably looking for like three or four. And other guys could be good players and contributing players, but that's the reality in the portal world is you go look at, you know, Oregon's highest-ranked recruiting class of all time, and that was 2021, uh, the last full cycle under under Mario Cristobal, and there were a lot of big-time names in there. And two of them were Kingsley Suomatia, who never made a start for Oregon, and Ty Thompson, who never made a start for Oregon. You, you just can't know what is going to play out for these kids over the course of their careers. And you keep going down that 2021 class, and you do see players like Jeffrey Bossa or Jackson Powers Johnson, Troy Franklin was in there as well. You, you see guys who end up having really good productive careers. So, you know, high school recruiting is definitely not what it used to be, and it doesn't play out the same way on the roster. To say it doesn't matter would be would be wrong. But to say that it's, 
exactly the same or that the same number of players from a given high school recruiting class, even a talented one, are going to contribute in a major way over the course of their college careers would also be incorrect. Spencer, do you think uh, the, the recruiting class this year, does it look any different than you know the past couple of years with Dan Lanning now that they're in the Big Ten? Do you think, has the recruit changed or is it still kind of going about the same way that Lanning's always approached the recruiting classes? I, I don't think it's changed for Lanning. You know, I think that what Lanning focuses on is different than what Mario Cristobal and company focused on. You know, Cristobal, I think, prioritized uh, physicality at, you know, every single position, frankly. And I, I think Lanning is a little bit more geared towards finding not just athletic freaks, but, but fast players. And he you know, wants to have more speed, not like the undersized speed of the, the, the Chip Kelly days, I don't think, but I think Lanning brings that kind of SEC pedigree and understands, you know, the, the type of player that he's looking for to build uh, a national championship contender. And, and make no mistake about it, even though Oregon uh, isn't going to be in that discussion directly this year, they're a national championship caliber team. It didn't work out for them, of course, but to say that, you know, just because they lost to Washington by three points for the second time in the Pac-12 title game, that suddenly at 11-1 and one, we should have looked back and said, no, they were – they were frauds all the time. We never should have gotten excited or anything like that. No, they they, they were that good. Washington is just was just better this year on the field. So I, I think that for the Ducks, you know, their their strategy doesn't change. I think Lanning has a very clear idea of what he wants. He wants to build a great defense and you know use the portal. I think to supplement with some great offensive players, particularly at quarterback. He's you know two for two on bringing in transfers uh, at this point in time. So. I, I think he, you know, wants to build a high school team or, or a high school uh, laden defense, and you know, understand that for the transfer portal, there are going to be plenty of options offensively. The last time we had you on, Spencer, uh, we were talking about the theory of Dante Moore coming to Oregon. You wrote about it at seven fifty thegame dot com, and we're basically making an argument for why it makes sense for both Dante and the Ducks for him to, to come back to Eugene, even after the addition of Dylan Gabriel. Here we are, lo and behold, it it came to fruition. You know, it became a reality. Now that it's uh, locked and loaded, what, what do you think of Dante Moore's addition to Eugene and what it means for the QB room of the future for Oregon? Well, uh, first of all, it's obviously the second time that I have used my mythical powers to speak something into existence. <laughs> the uh, The first time was uh, right out of college. I worked at Eastern Oklahoma State, a junior college out in uh, southeast Oklahoma. And Heck yeah. on my radio show, I was talking about how it was National Donut Day. And I really wanted a donut because I was just talking about it. I was like, yeah, donuts sound really good. No, no less than 15 minutes later, a woman from the local donut shop walks in and says, I was listening to your radio show and heard you wanted donuts, so I thought I'd bring you some. She had half a dozen donuts for us to have at the station. So, it doesn't get better than uh, that, Spencer. I No, 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 it, it, it truly does not. And, and I'm being facetious, of course, because there were a, a lot of people saying, hey, you know, Dante Moore to Oregon can make sense. And I was against it at first as as far as it went to, you know, have Dante Moore starting at Oregon in 2024. But Dante Moore is a backup at Oregon in 2024. I don't know that there's a better home for him out there. You're going to be learning from – a six-year quarterback in Dylan Gabriel from an offensive coordinator in Will Stein who has had wildly productive and quarterback-driven offenses and has put up great numbers with two different signal callers over the last couple seasons at 
Oregon and UTSA. Ty Thompson showed clear, measurable growth in, you know, the production he was able to, to have on the field and the opportunities he did get whilst at Oregon. I think Will Stein has done nothing but, but instill confidence as an offensive coordinator and as a quarterback's coach. And, you know, Oregon's going to be able to bring in weapons every single year. The offensive line has been elite the last couple of seasons, and it should be again next season. I think that it's a great spot for Dante Moore to be in, and I wasn't super high on him transferring from UCLA because I just watched Chip Kelly develop Dorian Thompson-Robinson, but um, I, I think that he, he found the best spot possible. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I'm just remembering when Will Stein got the Oregon job, I looked up some UTSA stuff. I'm just remembering now that Frank Harris, his QB there, uh, is a lefty. So he knows how to, you know, tailor his offense to a left-handed quarterback. He's done it before. That's, so. a, great, that's a great point. And as everyone who who plays or played NCAA 14 knows, that makes it really difficult. <laughs> you still there? Did we lose you? Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm still here. I didn't know if you wanted to ask me a question well, or if I was okay who, to, who, to who was your, uh, in there. Who was your lefty in 14? Who you? Who you? Was that? Uh, no. I no. I no. I never. I never had a lefty. I, I oh. one time on my dynasty, I, I recruited a kid. Um, I don't remember where he was from, but I, I recruited a kid and, you know, started him, never paid attention to the fact that he was left-handed. I, I, I took one snap, and I think I called a sprint out right, and I was like, oh, okay, I got to remember. And three plays later, I called another sprint out, and I called it to the right, and it all went awry, and I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And then I just benched him and cut him in the offseason. Well, sprint outs, these half rollouts, sounds like Will Stein at UW, you know, these little uh, <laughs> pocket movers. Dude, that play, yeah. that little half rollout, that little half field, you know, read or whatever, and I know there's different variations of it, it either looks really bad or it works out. Like, it, it, you know, it's either like a great call, and you know, but aesthetically it just looks hard because, you know, it's it's not much of the field, especially Bo rolled left on one of those in the UW game. Wasn't that the the last fourth down? He was trying yeah, to get the, it to yeah, Tez. The last down, they went. They went sprint out switch uh, with a switch concept, and yeah. Washington was in zone, so they defended it really well. And I'm just like, man, when you don't get that, it looks like such a, you know, ah, it's, it, it sounds like it, it feels like you're trying to uh, thread a needle, you know, with, with that. I'm like, there's yeah. better options to do there, but you know, that's yeah. I'm yeah, not calling yeah, no, plays. I, I, you know, Joel, Joel Klatt after that first Washington game had, or I thought was a really good takeaway, and it was. I don't have a problem going for it. I have a problem with the execution and play call. And what his point was, and he is correct, is that Bo Nix all season long was really good at what? And often took flack in the Heisman race for checking the ball down too often. Why did he check the ball down? Because he was reading the defense and saying, you're giving me this. And, yeah, I could maybe try and force the ball down here, but you're giving me this. You know, the uh, first touchdown to Bucky Irving in the Civil War, I think, is a perfect example. Washington, or Oregon State's taking away everything all the way down the field, and Bo Nix just stands there. His offensive line gives him time, and he just swings out to Bucky Irving, who sprints out the sideline for a touchdown. And Joel Klatt's point on the first Washington game sprint out calls were Bo Nix is great at surveying its defense, identifying the coverage, and understanding where he needs to go with the football. And he made an adjustment to his credit. In the Pac-12 championship game, Oregon converted a fourth and goal and a fourth and five. 
and they did call a different sprint out on third and goal that right is, you know, it worked out because Terrence Ferguson made a one-handed catch, but right as, you know, Bonick snapped it, it, it was just kind of like, oh, boy, we really going to try this again, and then it worked, and it was a different variation. They faked quarterback run, so it wasn't exactly the same, but I, I think that, you know, you got to play to your quarterback's strengths, and for Bo Nix, that was letting him sit in the pocket and just dissect the defense and understand this is where the football is going to go, and I'm going to get it out on time and on target. And then sprint out takes away that ability. And that was class issue with it, and I think he made a really good point. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with this Fiesta Bowl against Liberty? Well, I can't say that I've watched a single Liberty football game this year because I, I, I tend to watch relevant Power 5 <laughs> college football. However... Um, you, you know that the Flames are going to be supremely motivated. This is the biggest game in the history of their program. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was that for Tulane last year in the Cotton Bowl against USC, and it's going to be that for Oregon here. And um, uh, The Ducks are going to be without a couple key players, but I think you're going to have an opportunity to see some guys who you know could step up big next year. I'd look for Cole Martin in the secondary. He could start potentially, uh, depending on who decides to play and whatnot, or how they manage the depth chart. But, uh, you know, I, I like watching football. I, I'm an Oregon fan, so I like watching Oregon football. And I expect the Ducks to come out and, and win the football game. Will they cover 17 and a half? I don't know. Um, the public has moved that line pretty substantially, though I think it might have adjusted once Bo Nix announced he was going to play in the game, which I think is awesome. And, you know, Bucky Irving's going to do that as well. I, I think that for the Ducks, you're, you're trying to create positive momentum. That's, that's what everybody not in the championship picture is looking to do into the offseason, and they've certainly done that with signing day, and you'd love to do that one more time on the field. Spencer McLaughlin, Locked on Ducks, Locked on Pac-12 podcast, and Oregon Duck contributor to 750thegame.com. Keep reading you there, Spencer, and appreciate the time that you take for us on the air here on the Bald Face Truth. Keep up the great work as always, and we'll uh, talk to you again down the road. Yeah, anytime, Judah. Appreciate it. There he is, Spencer McLaughlin, joining us on the Bald Face Truth. Play some Dan Lanning and Trent Bray audio as we move into our 5 o'clock hour, plus the 5 at 5 and Pudgeon audio. More of your phone calls at 503-417-7575. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano on the Bald Face Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Cazzano on 750 The Game. Early signing period today. The Ducks, another great day. They moved up a few spots in the national rankings. They've got a top five class nationally, pretty much anywhere you look. It's it's a big day for Dan Landing and company. He uh, spoke on it and said that uh, consistency is one of the keys to another great recruiting year. Yeah, I just think it speaks to the consistency of you know of our approach. And ultimately, you always want to focus on the guys you get, not the guys you don't. And um, we did a good job of identifying targets that fit, fit our needs, what we were looking for, but also fit our values um, of, of what we wanted in this program. Uh, also talking about improving the roster. Yeah, I just think it, it shows the, the staff um, and the program's work um, that they've put forward and, and then the vision for the program and where we're headed. So obviously the, the best way to enhance your team is to enhance your talent, and then it goes into developing that talent. So when we have that, we've got a great great chance to be successful here. And, you know, sometimes the state of Oregon's got good talent. Sometimes it, it doesn't, but at the same time, when it does have that talent available – 
Landing says we got to keep him here. Yeah, there's years, you know, at times when there's not as much uh, talent necessarily in the state that's going to fit, you know, our needs here at Oregon. And there's years where there are. And this year there was, you know, some guys that were really talented in state that we felt like were going to be great players for us in the future. And um, anytime there's local talent, anytime there's West Coast talent that fits our needs, that those are the guys that we want to get. So um, really excited about those guys. Jude Danube, Stephen Vaughn in for John Canzano. Another big, uh, big recruiting day for Dan Landing. I'm not sure it's sit back and smoke a cigar type day, unless he's already done that. I haven't seen that on social media. He did that last year. I think before Peyton Bowen flipped away from Oregon back to Oklahoma. <laughs> that that remember that big fiasco, the safety that ended up at Oklahoma. And I'm trying to remember the first school that he was supposed to go to was it USC or somewhere. And then he flipped to Oregon, then flipped to Oklahoma like in a heartbeat. So. Uh, I don't think there was an example like that, Stephen, but another really strong day for Dan Lanning. You know, honestly, the cigar thing seems like probably just a nightly thing that Lanning's doing. Seems like he it. He probably just recorded it that night, you know, just... Listening just, to his favorite country yeah, artist. Yeah, or, just, you know, having a good time. But no, yeah. I, you know, you're right. Like, Lanning, Lanning's killing it out on the recruiting trail. And, and I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It's it's the money, like we talked about, but it's also the fact that he is personable and he's very good in front of the microphone. I mean, every time he comes on John's show, he says the right thing. After the Washington game and the fourth downs, he said the right thing. He relates to a lot of the players because he still is relatively young. It's that good combination. Now now they got to you know continue to develop it on the field, but he definitely has it off the field, and I, I think that's half the battle when you're looking at recruiting. In our final hour, we'll do the 5-5. Five and five. We'll also play some punch-hit audio, and as promised, we'll get to Bill Shonley in uh, the night before Christmas in our final segment, and we'll finish Polar Express as well. Uh, just for just to boot it, uh, you know, rest in peace, Sean's the mayor. There's nobody uh, like you, and uh, he'll always usher us into the holiday season. We'll have some best of shows later in the week as well. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, in for John Canzano. B F F T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Hour three, happy hour on a Wednesday. Good to be here, Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, and you at 503-417-7575. Early signing day, Ducks making big splashes. Trent Bray signing up 10 players as well. We'll get some Trent Bray audio. Uh, for the Beavers, Dan Landing audio we just played a moment ago. Had Spencer McLaughlin on uh, as contributor to 750thegame.com as well in Locked On Ducks podcast. A couple of four-star receivers flipping to the Oregon Ducks away from Ohio State and USC. Helps vault Oregon from being around number eight in the country up into the top five nationally. Another big, big day for Dan Landing and company as they move into the Big Ten with Dylan Gabriel behind center. Uh, but before we get to any of that, Stephen, let's dive into it. Let's do the five at five. The five at five. And of course, as always, with the five at five, it doesn't start with five. It starts with number one. Bought a little bit of time there. Number yeah. one. Great job. That's uh, professional right there. Uh, we will start out with the National Science Day, actually, though, Judah, so we can talk about it again and right now. Uh, the Oregon Ducks. Doesn't really matter where you look. Top 10 class, potentially top 5 class, depending on where you look at. But they get a huge class headlined by a couple of flips. Jeremiah McClellan, a four-star receiver, he flipped from the Ohio State to Eugene to be an Oregon Duck. And four-star receiver Ryan Pelham, he flipped from USC to Oregon. Oregon with another nice day under Dan Laney. Now, while Oregon State didn't get a lot of recruits, 
But Trent Bray was happy with the quality of recruits he got. They're headlined by Exodus Ayers, the three-star cornerback from New Hampshire. I like that Exodus Ayers uh, pickup originally from Albuquerque. Goes to New Jersey for a couple years. Commits to Oregon State. Then the Big Ten stuff happens and the conference collapses and Ayers tells the athletic I'm still committed but if they don't join the Big 12 I'm have to rethink it well they didn't join the Big 12 his coach that recruited him left Jonathan Smith but Trent Bray is still there and he is still committed to Oregon State Ezekiel Ayers and he signs with them today to play defensive back that's probably the biggest win I think I, I like the two running backs that they're getting as well including a, a kid out of Texas love those Texas running backs coming out here so uh, good for the beeps there, but they're going to have to be really active in the portal. As for the Ducks, the four-star receivers flipping. Ryan Pelham, this kid from Milliken High School in Long Beach. His older brother was his head coach there. Uh, Ryan Pelham already has a, a little kid himself. He's already a father. Uh, and he was a USC commit for a long time, all the way back in, in the summer and was posting USC stuff on his Twitter timeline just a couple weeks ago. But today flips away from USC, and he is relocating him and his loved ones coming up to Eugene. That's a big, big deal. And it just speaks to the infrastructure and I'm sure the NIL compensation, but above everything, probably the relationships and just overall stability that Oregon will uh, provide to Ryan uh, Pelham and his family. I was trying to find any relation to Don Pelham and I couldn't do it. So if you guys know that Don Pelham's related to him, and let, let me know, but I couldn't find it uh, upon initial research, but got another Pelham in Eugene. He's a four-star receiver to do it. All right. Number two. Oregon State and Washington State. It's almost an end, Judah, to see depending on where they're going to play and the conferences coming forward. We know they're going to be in the Mountain West. Well, have an agreement with the Mountain West for the next couple of seasons in football. But now they've announced the Oregon State and Washington State have agreed to join the West Coast Conference in all the sports besides football and baseball for the next two seasons. Speaking for the two schools will be part of automatic qualifying conference for numerous sports, including college basketball. So if you win the uh, conference tournament, which they will be a part of in 2024, then get to the NCAA tournament that way. Um, this starts in July of 2024. We go for two seasons. So the Bees and the Cougs, we join the West Coast Conference, of course. That is the conference with Gonzaga, St. Mary's. Uh, University of Portland is in that conference as well. So we'll see some Oregon State-Portland battles, which I think will be pretty fun. Um, and as we call, I mentioned earlier, Gonzaga at Oregon State, Corvallis. Be fun little games there. So it uh, seems like Oregon State Washington State have a nice little agreement with the West Coast Conference. It keeps them relevant, keeps them, you know, if they win their conference, they get to the NCAA tournament in numerous sports. And I think that's good. And then it also gives them the flexibility with baseball as they haven't quite made the decision there. Uh, rumors of being independent. Rumors of trying to get to the Big West. Maybe stay in the West Coast Conference. Who knows with uh, Oregon State baseball. Yeah, fascinating times, but I think it's good stability for the short term for the non-football sports. That's really good news. You being the basketball guy as well, Oregon State not doing terrible this year so far? Um, Sure, yeah. No, I mean, they're not They're not great. They're not very good at all. They haven't um, beaten anybody good. They haven't I mean, beaten anybody good. They've, they've they haven't a, lost a, a lot of Undefeated games? at home. Undefeated at home. Now, I think they have three overtime victories against, you know, very mid-major programs. Yes. Uh, but, you know, they played a couple decent teams, and they, they lost to them. But, you know, they have a winning record. They're undefeated at home. That's really all you can ask for. Washington State's actually really good in Ken Palm. Now, the same thing with them. Their schedule hasn't been great, but uh, Ken Palm loves them. And Ken, Ken Palm's the gospel of college basketball. Gospel. So, uh, you know, I, I'll say this. Like, Oregon State... They're not going to be at the top of the West Coast Conference for sure, 
in the basketball point of view, but they're not going to be at the bottom either. Like, they'll be right in the middle, and I think that they'll be able to compete and beat some of these teams at the bottom. Who's at the bottom? Depends on the year. Pacific, San Diego, Steve Lavin in San Diego. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot about Steve Lavin. That was a great laugh there. But, yeah, Steve Lavin coaches at uh, San Diego Pacific, former Damon Stoudemire School. Now he's at Georgia Tech. Um, you know, Loyal Marymount, Pepperdine, Lorenzo Romar, Pepperdine. He's there? He was, I think. I don't I don't think he left yet. Wow. All right. Well, if they're at the bottom of uh, the WCC, that would be It's possible. They could. They could, but I think that they I think they fit right in. I was just I was trying to see how this affects Wayne if at all. Uh, or if you, if you're Oregon State, maybe you don't want to make any moves at all. You, you, I think if you're Oregon State, you want to make a move because you want to get off Wayne Tinkle and that contract. But uh, I don't know if they can afford that. I don't know if they can afford to I, afford to. I, I do think that it's a good fit though for Oregon State and for Washington State. I also yeah. think it's a good fit for the West Coast Conference. Like you, the West Coast Conference, especially in the basketball world, is a respected conference, and they are definitely trending upward. I mean, back when BYU was in the conference, they've had three teams in the NCAA tournament at a time with BYU, St. Mary's and Gonzaga, so they've proven to be able to not only get the automatic qualifier, but they've proven to get um, you know, at-large bids. And it's not just St. Mary's. It's not just Gonzaga. So if Oregon State or Washington State are playing in the West Coast Conference, they have a good season. They get some non-conference wins. They have a chance to be an at-large bid. And I think that's really all you can ask for right now uh, out, of, out of Oregon State and Washington State as they're trying to just tread water and get to one of those big conferences if realignment reopens back up. It will uh, begin in the WCC July 1st, 2024. We'll run through June 30th, 2026. Number three. Well, stop me if you heard this before, but Dylan Brooks, fined. <laughs> Dylan Brooks and his head coach, Ime Yudoka, they were fined uh, thousands of dollars. Dylan Brooks, $35,000. Yudoka, $25,000 for language and publicly criticizing, officiating. They were both ejected with about 38 seconds left in their game against the Milwaukee Bucks, which they lost when there was a flopping call on Dylan Brooks. Brooks said after the game, quote, I'm sick of refs being right in front of the play and not making calls and then compiling it with a bailout call like a flop. I ran full speed to get the ball after I made a great play. I'm trying to get a steal. Two hands are on me. After that, I'm throwing the ball and trying to protect myself and not falling into whatever that was into the fans or the bottom of the floor. And quote, Dylan Brooks not happy. Ime Yudoka not happy. They've made it clear with the refs. They were not happy with the refs, but now they have been fined. Uh, call me not surprised by this one as Dylan Brooks. This is kind of what his MO is right now. Yeah. it's He's got to have a, a fine budget going for the season. And he's starting to hit that quota, but give him time. You know, he has yet to get there. How many texts do you get before you're suspended? Like eight or something? I don't know what the rule is. I want to say something like yellow it's like cards. Double digits, maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. Don't tell Oregon State soccer, but mm. too soon. Uh, they play defense out there in Houston. They're a good little team. He may. He may. One of, he's one of us, right? He's one of us. Sure. Do we, do we say that with confidence or no? I mean, went to Portland State. Was a blazer. He's from Portland. It's from He's Jeff- a Jefferson, I believe. Yeah, it's one of us, right? It's still okay to say that. I think so. I mean, it was a. Uh, I mean, he got a job again. <laughs> he resurfaced. It was not a great uh, outing <laughs> there in Boston, but uh, yeah. And uh, Dylan, one of us. Any yeah, Duck fans still so, claim him too? So, uh, so well represented in the league. Number four. Oh man, <laughs> Dylan Brooks. Ah, another uh, guy that we would love to talk about, Aaron Rodgers. 
Uh, it's obvious he won't play again this season, as he said that at the Mackey Show. Jets also confirmed that. Robert Sala said there is no chance that Aaron Rodgers is getting in the game, but he will continue to practice, even though his 21-day practice window is going to close. The Jets have decided to keep him on the 53-man roster for the final three games of the season. Dude, I want to get your take on that. They're taking away a spot for somebody else so they can have Aaron Rodgers just practice, mm. knowing that they're not even going to get him into the game because they're out of the playoff contention. I mean, it, I don't know. I kind of feel like it should go to a guy that might actually get to play, but uh, you know, the Jets are really investing more in Aaron Rodgers as they have all season long. Well, they are eliminated, so what's the move here? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see getting a roster spot to reevaluate somebody else, but I still think you need to evaluate Aaron Rodgers. Because uh, you don't have much of a sample size with the guy yet. Uh, definitely not in live bullets. So you're reevaluating all this for 2024. I'm just curious, what kind of practicing is he going to be doing? Like, what kind, is he moving? Like, you know, how close is he to being able to play in a game? Obviously, he'll tell you he's not close. So um, I, I don't know. It is a strange one because, you know, these coaches are so anal about all their roster spots and getting guys reps and stuff. It's kind of similar, though, for me when Gino was active the other night. I was like, uh, and then didn't start. I was like, well, then what's the point of him being active? Didn't that take away? Like, every roster spot's valuable, but you never know how these coaches, you know, think and operate, and I think they're just trying to get a good vibe for, for 2024. And frankly, if Aaron Rodgers, he decided this. You know, if he wants to practice, he's going to practice. If he doesn't want to practice, then they would have gone elsewhere with it. So Sala did go on to say that he felt like they had enough flexibility on the roster to make this move and to put Rodgers on the active roster. So it, yeah. it shouldn't affect anything big. But I don't know. I just, I'd love to see it go to a you know a guy that's not usually on the roster. But whatever, it, it is what it is. It's Aaron Rodgers, and you know I think they're trying to get ready for next season. For Wait sure. your turn, kid. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Raj. <laughs> Wait until the next Achilles torn quarterback wants to practice. Be patient. Number five. Well, Steelers safety DeMonte Kazi, he's been suspended for the remainder of the season for a hit he had on Michael Pittman over the weekend. Uh, I want to talk to you about this, Judy, because it was a nasty hit. If yeah. you didn't see it, uh, Michael Pittman dove for a ball. Kazi lowered his shoulder, and, I mean, Pittman's body just bent in a really weird way backwards. But... It was because of the dive. It wasn't because of anything like a bad hit. Kazi had nowhere else to hit. Tom Brady came out. He said, nobody likes seeing players get hurt, but hit, hard hits happen. QBs should be should not be throwing the ball in areas where they're exposing their own teammates to these type of hits. Coaches need to be coached better. QBs need to read coverages and throw the ball to the right places. And defenders should aim for the right hitting areas. To put the blame on the, defense, on the defense player all the time is just flat out wrong. No, need better QB play. It's not okay, QBs, to get your wide receivers hit because of your bad decisions. That's what the GOAT, Tom Brady, says. Uh, I want to get your take on that. With Kazi being suspended for the season with that hit, it's not the first time he's had one of these hard hits before. So, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, history things, kind of like the Draymond Green. But what do you think of that? With, uh, you know, it wasn't a great throw by Gardner Minshew. Are we, are we putting too much on the defense right now to make the play and uh, not blame the quarterbacks at all? Boy, you know, with, with Tom Brady... If he says what he says and he goes to those lengths, like, I'm going to believe Tom Brady. You know what I mean? Like, he's the one that's gone out there and done it and believes in how the position should be played. And I appreciate that he chimes in on this. I think 
I don't buy the fact that KZ was helpless with that. Like, that's the only place that he could hit him. You know, I don't buy that. I don't think that it was just the dive that got KZ in trouble. He doesn't have good technique. All right. That's just the fact of it. You got to have better technique. You got to have better, um, you know, wherewithal and awareness and execution. It's just bad all the way around. It's sloppy all the way around by, by all parties. Sloppy throw from Minshew to put Pittman in that position. Sloppy technique from KZ. So I appreciate what, what Brady is saying here with it. Um, but at the same time, there's no way that the league is going to reverse course on the direction it's been going of protecting offensive players. I do think it's interesting that Tom points out like it's changing how the QB position is being played. That's a throw in my day, being Tom, I wouldn't have made because I know it puts my receiver in a bad position. That's a big deal. You know, it takes away a, a big-time throw to your best receiver, right? Because you know that he might get blown up if you put that ball in. Like, that totally changed. Julian Edelman on his podcast, which is pretty funny, um, he'll say, like, look, I knew with Tom, and we worked all the time on routes and timing. We had this chemistry. There were some throws that we knew, like, I was going to have to get hit. And Tom, he's not telling the full truth when he said I wouldn't throw it to my receivers because – there are a lot of times he threw it to Welker or Edelman, those slot possession guys over the middle especially, and knew that sometimes you got to catch it and get hit. Yeah, how many concussions that's also Wes part of the game. A, a, a ton, a, right? A trillion. So, Is that even a number? Yeah. Still doing well. Receivers coach with the Miami Dolphins oh, yeah. for Mike McDaniel now. But do you – but, but, you... So there, it goes both ways with it, but I, I, I do think it's interesting, and I would like to dig into this. If the receivers that get hit like this and are defenseless like this, are the throws often coming from backup quarterbacks or non-great quarterbacks? Like, are the great quarterbacks making a lot of these throws? Are, are Pat, is Patrick Mahomes putting his receivers in bad position? I don't see that a lot of times. I could be wrong, but I do think Brady's point is well taken. Sometimes it comes back to the quarterback's decision-making and accuracy that puts him in these positions. Yeah, I think this, this situation, it was just a bad spot where – you give Pittman some credit for going for the ball. Like, sometimes the receivers wouldn't even go for the ball. They would just let it go, and they wouldn't dive like that to try to catch it. He does, and the defender, you know, in his credit, like, I don't think he tried to hit him in the head. Like, there's no, yeah. there's literally nowhere to hit. The only thing he could have done is back off and hope that he dropped the football. He's trying to make a play. I, I just yeah, feel like sometimes. I think you can still go for the ball. And only for the ball and not like, for the body. I just feel like we're asking too much of the you defense sometimes. You are asking sometimes. a lot of them. That's true. Just so, sometimes. And, and, and I agree with the decision the NFL has made is that they want to invest in the offense. They want to invest in the quarterbacks. And you got to protect those guys. But at some point, we have to protect some of the defense. Because defense is part of the game. And I feel like sometimes the defense is put in such an impossible situation to make any type of play, whether it's on the quarterback, and now that's making it impossible to you know hit wide receivers. I've sometimes it's just I don't know. I feel like I feel for the defense on this one, but at the same time, you got to protect the offense. Yeah. Uh, the offense sells a lot of tickets, sells a lot of fantasy football, sells a lot of betting. You're gambling on the offense, so I understand where the NFL's coming from. Suspending for the season also sounds harsh, but there's only a handful of games left for a team that's, at this point, probably not going to the playoffs. Well, and it includes the postseason if the Steelers somehow makes the postseason. Yeah. He will not be eligible. And look, you, you have a prior history, so uh, that's that's tough. Um, we'll do a little bit of punched audio in our next segment as well, but we'll also get to some here. Keep it on the uh, NFL flavor. Talking about Jamal Adams not showing up to the game on Monday night. Um, this is K.J. Wright on Seattle Sports. He does a show on uh, Wednesday mornings. Uh, talking about the implications of 
what Jamal Adams was doing there. What's happening by you not showing up is you're drawing more attention to yourself. You're drawing more attention to Jamal Adams. If you were there on the sideline cheering, high-fiving, um, supporting your guys, I would have been like, man, look at that. That's a good teammate. He, um, he's not healthy. We understand that. They decided to make a decision with him. It would have been no news. He'd been looking like Devin Witherspoon on the sideline. But when you make a decision to say, I'm not going to show up, I'm not going to go in there because of a decision that the coaches made, that is drawing attention to Jamal Adams. It's not about the 53 guys on the football field. It's about you right now. I am starting to get some Antonio Brown vibes with Jamal Adams, uh, only insofar as it doesn't seem like he's he's mentally there with this football team right now. Now, whether or not he is as a human being, I mean, I'll leave that up for you to decide. I mean, not that it's for us to decide, but when you're calling out a random reporter's wife and saying yikes on social media uh, because the reporter simply posted a highlight that was not a highlight of you. It was of Jake Ferguson taking the ball away from you on a play that you could have made uh, and just saying, yikes, I, I, I'm going to say that you are not uh, fully balanced right now as, a, as an individual. And I hope Jamal Adams gets right. And that's further reinforced when you don't show up to the stadium as an active player making a lot of money with the Seahawks. You don't show up to the stadium because... Pete Carroll doesn't think you're fit to be able to contribute to the football team when the whole world saw against the 49ers the previous week. You're not fit to contribute to this football team in the biggest moment of the season. Then I think, yes, something's a little off with you right now, Jabal, and I just, I'm over it. Well, I want to ask you this, Judy. I mean, you're the one that, you know, you, you watch Seahawks games, you watch them again, you study them. From an outsider's point of view, when I watch the Seattle Seahawks, I don't think they're necessarily even missing Jamal Adams on the field. And I think you're right. Like, it, it hurts his ego a little bit more than anything, probably. It's just like, hey, they don't even necessarily need me. Are the Seahawks better off just saying, hey, you know what, Jamal? Like, take a break. Stay home for the probably the rest of the season. Come back next year at, uh, you know, training camp and see what happens. Like, are the Seahawks better just to kind of cut ties with him at this point and just say, you know what? Let's just uh, stay away with you for the whole season, then we'll yeah. go forward with what we got. Well, there's no coming back to training camp next year and see what happens if you say go home for the rest of the year. That, that, that's it. That's it's, it's, that's a breakup. You know, there'll be trade requests, et cetera. There'll be follow. You're not. But who's going to want him though? You're not going to. I guess you know. could just cut him. Don't know. I guess you you could cut him. We'd have to see what the dead cap is at that point. But um, you know, when they play Kyle Shanahan, he is a liability because Kyle knows every way in the book to be able to exploit thirty three. When you play other play callers, you know, he still is good in the box, but only in the box. As basically a a souped up uh, you know, a lighter linebacker, but a souped up box safety. Like that's that's what he does. When he blitzes from unpredictable areas and he fits the run. Uh in the Niner game, you know, he was playing from a deep position on the field and was, you know, he's just terrible. But in the Browns game, you know, at least he forced the pass from PJ Walker off his helmet, got us an interception, helped win the game down the stretch. He'll make plays around the line of scrimmage a lot. Like, you know, if I'm just being honest about what he still provides defensively, he can make plays around the line of scrimmage still. But in coverage, doesn't take a genius to see. The dude struggles. His awareness is terrible. He's When he's going downhill, he'll still put his nose in there and try to make a play on the ball around the line of scrimmage. But outside of that, he doesn't have a lot of value. Now, when you're playing the Steelers coming up in a couple weeks, when you're playing... Um, you know, maybe a team in the playoffs that likes to run the ball a lot outside of the 49ers, I guess. You know, I would have thought the Eagles would have been one of those teams, but Pete Carroll 
put his foot in the ground and said, no, you're, you're not, you're but not it's, right. But the attitude and personality just too It's much. part of it. Well, yeah, it absolutely is part of it. Point. And it helps that you sign Julian Love, right? I mean, you signed him in, in free agency, so him and Quandre, you've got two true safeties anyway. The three safety thing was an experiment to begin with that has not really gone all that well. There's been ebbs and flows of it being okay, part of it being Devin Witherspoon being a great player, playing at nickel. But outside of that, I mean, the last month or so, Seattle's been really bad defensively. And look, without Adams, and luckily even somehow without Witherspoon, they were able to hold the Eagles to 17 points, which going back and rewatching that game, I'm still scratching my head how they did that. But it helps that Philly um, you know, was sloppy in a couple of areas and a couple fourth-quarter picks to seal it uh, certainly helped the cause as well. We'll bounce a break, come back, a little punch and audio. Hear from Trent Bray as well, and get a little more uh, Bill Shinley holiday readings as we go uh, further into the week and get closer to Christmas time. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We'll get some uh, Bill Shonley audio a little bit later on this hour. Signing day coming and going. Big day for the Ducks. Get some Trent Bray reaction in here as well. It's uh, Judah Dumi and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano. Let's play a little punch at audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Ten players signed to Oregon State today. Trent Bray on the fact that 10 is not a big number, but that's all right. Yeah, continuing to look at where we need to add both older guys and younger guys. Um, that was, we just went through that. That's that, that was a big thing when we were doing this is learning really from lessons learned from the first time we got to Oregon State six years ago. You don't panic about the first signing day. Make sure it's the right guys, the right kids, and don't just take guys because you feel you gotta fill needs or just fill spots on the board. Um, and that's what we did. We weren't we weren't looking to take. We, we were fine if we took a small number, but we were able to get some of these guys that we thought had added great value, and we got ten really good ones that we feel are going to have great futures here. Bray also talked about the impact of the transfer portal early on. Punch it. Yeah, and this year is going to be a little bit different than years past, as far as we'll take more portal portal guys than we probably will in a normal year, just because of the turnover, guys leaving, um, you know, threat of guys getting poached. Um, so it'll be a little bit heavier that way this year, but it, but in general, we're still going to be a place of development with high school and junior college guys. That's got to be our core guys that are going to be in the program for a long period of time. That's how you build a culture. If it's just guys jumping in for one year and out, one year and out, I mean, you see across the country teams that do that, that there's nothing, there's no substance there. We don't want to be that program. We want to be a program of substance and culture, and so we got to do it with guys that are going to develop over a long period of time and then fit holes as we need to depending on the depth chart that or the you know roster that year you know i i know it comes from an authentic place but i i think i'm a little tired about hearing about substance for one football season <laughs> what do you think steven uh, bray is really uh hammering home the loyalty substance you know he's really hammering that home that's yeah. uh, that's what they want well be about. and daniel is you know substance this and d on that and 
It's a little, a little much, you know. I, yeah, I get it. I get it though. But do you, what do you, what do you think to his point that uh, they're going to have to go out to the transfer portal a little more this season than they will maybe in uh, the next couple of years? It makes sense to me. Makes sense, especially the just ten, uh, ten incoming signings. Um, Salahadin Allah, running back from Lamarck, Texas, six foot two hundred five. Uh, excited to see what he brings to the table. Dexter Foster, Central Catholic. He's a linebacker. He's coming to the Beavs as part of this as well. Uh, we talked about this guy, Exodus Ayers. What a great name. Badass. Exodus Ayers. 6'1", 185. He'll play defensive back. Uh, originally from Albuquerque and then played a couple years out in New Jersey. And uh, stayed true to the Beavers even after all the, the conference collapsing and Jonathan Smith leaving. So that's the guy I'm most excited about, Exodus Ayers. Maybe this Wilsonville quarterback, too, Callan Gutridge. Keep an eye on him as well. But I think you're right. Yeah, I think the transfer portal will dictate a lot uh, with the Beavers early on. As for Dan Lanning, man, he got a couple of big-time flips. Four-star receivers, one from USC, one from Ohio State, flipping to Oregon today. Uh, here he is uh, talking about Jeremiah McClellan, who flipped from the Buckeyes to the Duckies. Punch it. Well, it starts with him as a person. You know, we got got on the phone uh, earlier today after he signed his paper, and the first thing he tells me is, Coach, I just got a 94 on my last final. So um, he's not just an elite football player. He's an elite person. He comes from a phenomenal family, um, from a great school there at CBC. They've won a lot of state championships and had a lot of success. So excited about all the things he adds to our program, not just um, the player, but but also the person. And a guy out of the state of Missouri. You know, you hear Dan talking comfortably about his high school and all that. It's cool to see some of these Missouri guys coming to Oregon. This guy's from St. Louis. They also added a uh, Juco running back from Missouri. I think Southwest Missouri State, Jay Harris. And I don't know much about him other than he's like 6'2", 220. So that's a nice size. And he says he runs like Najee Harris and Le'Veon Bell. Not terrible. I love that physicality coming from the Southwest are, Missouri State. They've We're, kind of been missing that, haven't they, the last couple seasons? That, that, yeah. that guy that can just pound it in the end zone. So I, I think Jordan James has done a really nice job, but I think he's not necessarily, you know, just run you over type of like beast mode type back. Like I think, I think this, uh, this Harris guy could be. So I'm really excited about that. But yeah, uh, another domino of this, this is Austin Novosad. It's a crowded quarterback room at Oregon now with Dylan Gabriel. Dante Moore, Luke Moga, it's a four-star, I believe, quarterback from Arizona, signed today officially, and uh, Austin Ovisad, he was the four-star that signed last year. Where does that leave you, Austin? Punch it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great opportunity and an opportunity for me to compete, really, um, go out there and just make everyone better. You know, we're going to have a good room, and I think that um, I'm excited for it. He's excited for it. And, of course, Ty Thompson in the portal, and there's rumors out there about him going to Oregon State, but we still don't know that for sure. You think Novosad gets into the game, uh, the Fiesta Bowl? Maybe the uh, Duckies get out by a bunch, and uh, he's the backup quarterback now. I think, yeah, I think that would be the goal for sure, would be to get Novosad some reps. Maybe give him, like, an Aiden Childs rep, third series. There you go. Just give him one. <laughs> the, uh, what the hell happened to Bo? What was the uh, Jebbia, Tristan Jebbia, yeah. last season with the Beavs? They just gave him the you know couple of runs there in the Vegas Bowl. Well, you know he yeah. was at least he was a starter at one point. You know, just give Novus out a, a rep a just to make sure he tries to stay and be a third stringer. Yeah, just give him a little candy. You know, stay here, stay please. That's actually true. That does happen. You know, guys are like, hey, here's some reps in the bowl game, give you incentive to stick around. A uh, little NFL talk. Chris Collinsworth on the Dan Patrick Show, talking about the 49ers. 
and uh, what their path is like to the Super Bowl if they get there. Punch it. You know what makes me hesitate? I, I think the Niners are a deserving favorite. I, I really do. But the NFC in general has not been what the AFC has been this year. It just hasn't been at that level. So if you're if you're looking at the AFC, and, and let's take a team, let's take Baltimore. You know, just slugging their way through that division alone is hard enough. And then you're going to have to slug your way through good teams in the playoffs. I mean, when the we're talking about the Buffalo Bills trying to get in as a seventh seed. Think about that. I mean, trying to get in as a ninth or whatever right now, it's unbelievable. So when you slug your way through whatever it is in the AFC, um, and we've seen San Francisco not struggle at all with Dallas or Philadelphia when they played, are they going to be as battle-tested come that last game um, that you're assuming they're going to get to? So I'm going to say I would take the field as of right now. Yeah, I'll actually say that's a good point, but you give me Kyle Shanahan with two weeks to prepare and one team to beat, I don't think it will matter as much whether or not you're battle-tested once you get to the Super Bowl. I think I would take the Niners over the field just because the the path is so easy. And maybe it's not as easy as I think it is, but we kind of talked about this yesterday. Who's the real threats in the NFC? Is it Dallas? I don't know. I don't think so. The Eagles? Not the way they're playing right now. The Lions? I I just don't see a threat for the Niners. And so if, if I'm taking this bet, it's... Well, I think the Niners are getting to the Super Bowl a lot of the time, and I get at least one yeah. Super Bowl team in there. So I understand what Collinsworth is saying. Like, they're not going to be, you know, tested necessarily in the playoffs. But, but he's also saying that once they get to the Super Bowl, he would take the AFC team because the Niners haven't been as tested as but, the AFC representative. I, I, see, I, don't, I, I, don't I buy get that, that but I don't, I don't know it. how much influence that would have see, on I the game. I don't buy that at yeah. all because we look at the Niners and how talented they are. Like, exactly. I, I don't think it really matters. Like Maybe they are just that much better than everybody. I think which they, AFC team, say we put the Niners in the Super Bowl, I know that's premature, but which AFC team would you be most excited to watch them play? Buffalo. I think the Buffalo offense with Josh Allen provides just a different wrinkle. And the Niners defense is not as good as it was last season. I'll say that the offense is great, elite, but I think Buffalo could score some points on them, and I think it'd be a really intriguing game. I'd say any of them. I think Buffalo is a good answer. I think Kansas City is an interesting answer, but we'll obviously, see. We'll see on Christmas how Baltimore plays. But Baltimore them. on Christmas is such a good one. My sneaky one would be Miami, because I know we're just going to write Miami off like they can't win on the road, etc. I don't know that's entirely true because their defense is actually pretty darn good right now. But Vic Fangio against Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel against Kyle Shanahan in a Super Bowl would be so sweet. Tyreek against them. And oh. McDaniels and Shanahan have that history together. So, Oh, big time. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, and, and Fangio was Harbaugh's DC yeah. with the 49ers. So, and he's a, you know, he's a genius. So I feel like I think, we, I think we so just, cool. what, we, what we just realized is this 49ers need to get to the Super Bowl. No matter who the matchup is, it's going <laughs> to be a good, it's going to be a good Super Bowl. It's going to be a good one. Now watch for the Seahawks to get in there and upset everybody. Yeah. Hey, yo. <laughs> all right. That's punch it audio. Uh, good stuff. Best sound from all around. Uh, by the way, actually, you know, we won't use the music for this, but how about this from Bruce Feldman talking about Oregon's influence in the transfer portal and NIL space. This is uh, him on the Rich Eisen show. What you don't know is often exactly how much, but that is absolutely what's going on. I mean, I've talked to a lot of coaches last off season where they were like, 
Guys are poaching. They're recruiting off your roster, and they're saying, you need to get in the portal. We'll pay you this. And Even the, at games where they're they're competing against them, right? Yeah, I've definitely heard from coaches going, they're looking around the post-game handshake, and they see the head coach talking to one of their players, and they kind of get a, a sinking feeling. You know, the schools with the best collectives, the programs with the best collectives, certainly that is the Oregon Ducks. You know, Phil Knight, they have... Uh, you saw what they did recently. They get Dylan Gabriel, who was the one quarterback who beat Texas this year at Oklahoma. Um, he's going to be an Oregon Duck. He'll probably be a really good fit in that system, and they'll probably, you know, when they go into the Big Ten next year, he'll make them a legit playoff contender. I also hear that if you're somebody that's talking with these collectives, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Like even as before you even talk with these collectives, and that's part of the reason why no money figures are getting out or, or whatever. Like you know, and little to no information because it's still kind of a dark world out there in the uh, collective and NIL space. At least for the big boys, I think for Oregon State, you just do what you do. You know, Dick Oldfield and damn collective and everybody like they do what they do. Everything's easy and above board, and everybody has great things to say about working with the damn collective. But when you're doing big money, big boy things like what Oregon's working with at uh, what do they call it, Division Street, um, and, and a lot of the you know collective efforts that they got going on there, there's some behind the scenes stuff happening. I'm not saying it's it's wrong. Obviously, it's not. NIL is a part of what we're doing, but it is a you know there is still some some cross hatching, some shady shades back there between guys that are already committed to schools or already playing on other rosters, and it's happening everywhere. But guys that are on other rosters probably can plot their path by November to the next school that they're getting to. And then it's just about, you know, figuring out compensation. There's a lot behind the scenes still with all this stuff. And uh, it's above board. So cool. But it is interesting to hear that cut from Bruce Feldman, Stephen, and be like, yeah, Oregon, he just said it. They're the most influential and powerful NIL collective in the nation. Like we all know that Nike has so much money and so much influence, but Feldman basically said they're like, they are the influence. Like they well, have, now we know why they're cutting the, their golf division and Tiger Woods. Yeah, they need more money. They need more money for Division Street. They need more money for the football team. What, <laughs> for Dylan but, Gabriel. But I think I think that goes to show, like, any recruit, any transfer recruit that you're, the old Ducks are interested in, they're always going to be they're always going to be a play for it because you never know how much money they're going to have just invested in that program. Coming up, Bill Shunley reads the night before Christmas as we uh, get ourselves ever closer to the holiday season. We got best of the Bald Face Truth shows coming up later this week and uh, coming after the Christmas holiday. So let's usher our way out with a little Bill Shonley. That's next right here on the Bald Face Truth. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Got some best of the Bald Face Truth shows coming up uh, later this week. And after the uh, Christmas holiday to look forward to, we'll be back again next week, of course. Uh, coming up shortly, Bill Shonley reading The Night Before Christmas. This is how we uh, always like to uh, get into the holiday spirit. And we'll play it again in our final segments um, on Friday as well as uh, we get into the holiday weekend. Stephen, can you feel it? You in the Christmas spirit? 
And the birthday spirit for it's, your little one. It's here, man. It's here. It's hit me in the face. Uh, I'm, ready. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it to be here and uh, have some fun. And, uh, you know, kick back, enjoy time with the family. Then be over. And then be over. <laughs> then right back, right back to the real world. Uh, you know, I, I have always wanted to maybe start my New Year's resolutions earlier before everybody else. But there's too much chocolate around the house, man. No chance. Got no chance. There's too many games to bet on for me. That's a resolution? To not bet as much and you know. To not to not lose as much. Yeah, that's true. You know, just just the winning bets is fine. Yeah, I plan on winning more this year. You gave out Blazers plus seven yesterday. I appreciated that. Thank you. Uh what's going on with Shaden? Sharp. Uh once Anthony Simons has come back, it's kind of been a it's been a fight for the ball. You know, who 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 gets the ball, who gets to shoot more, so they gotta figure it out. They gotta figure they out got who got banged up a little bit too. Yeah, that too. So. But it just I think he's uh you know he's still super young and so he's a little passive. Yeah. And Anthony Simons is the guy, so he he's taking the ball over and he's been uh shooting a lot more. Well, they got uh, some things to play out, but glad they got that dub yesterday. Uh we we played a little uh Polar Express. I almost said Panda Express. Bill Shonley reading the menu at Panda Express would be fun too, but I'd listen. I would listen to that orange chicken. Um, but uh, actually, now I'm really hungry. But uh, we had him read uh, Polar Express once upon a time, in addition to a bunch of other classics, and aired that yesterday. But the real uh, highlight of of the holiday season is always Bill Shonley reading the night before Christmas. We'll do this again on Friday's show, but uh, we'll play it again here as well as we get closer. To the Christmas season. It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring. Not even a mouse. Those stockings, those stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Those children, they were all nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama, in her kerchief, and I in my cap, we had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon, the beautiful moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment that it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers there came, and he whistled and shouted, and he called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. Come on, Comet, come on, Cupid, Donder and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, they mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, 
I heard on the roof the crunching and the pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes, they were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, all oh, his eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed just like a bowl full of jelly. He was chub and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all of the stockings. And then he turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team he gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Just beautiful each and every year. I hear it. Uh, it doesn't get old. Um, Bill Shonley, rest in peace uh, to the mayor of Rip City, as always. But that will get me into the holiday spirit. Favorite part of that? Calling uh, Santa plump and jolly. Laughing in spite of myself. Uh, there's multiple parts of that. Just the way that uh, the Shons delivers it brings it a smile to my face. So... That definitely helps. Other things to help get me in the holiday spirit. Maybe some eggnog. I feel like I've gone a year or two without eggnog, Stephen, and uh, I feel like I need to dive back in, bring it back in my life. I actually just got some eggnog. I try to get eggnog once a year, you know, just at the Christmas time, and I did get some. So I haven't had any yet, but I will uh, definitely be having some soon. I'd be surprised at the person that does eggnog once a year, and it's like on July 4th or something. I should start doing that, <laughs> Just a zag with them. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, trite, simple, but I'm a big Charlie Brown guy, so I would do that. I'd, I'd like Wonderful uh, Wonderful Life, so when that's on, I'll uh, fire that up on the Christmas Eve on NBC or whoever has the rights to it these days. I think it's NBC. Uh, boy, by the way, some of the holiday TV that's on these days is just whack. There's some, like, light show on ABC last night that it's too much stimulus, man. Like, people go way all out with their lights. It's like, dude, just calm down, you know? Well, do you have lights? Yeah, we got um, we got uh, some accents, <laughs> you know? 
but I'm not here to dominate. I let everybody else do that thing. And then the little, you don't want to show people up. I don't want to show people up. Not right now. You know, I'll flex on them later when I have more money. <laughs> like you say, I could use. Uh, maybe I'll I'll get my Division Street contacts on that. You know, work the NIL space to dominate the neighborhood. Uh, but that will be another holiday season. I appreciate you, Stephen Vaughn. I know you got some time with the holidays and the family. Have a wonderful Christmas and uh, little birthday for the little one as well. And to all of you listening, appreciate you as well. Cheer to Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano. Got some best of shows coming your way uh, later this week on the Bald Face Truth.